Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. So there's a story circulating in the Pac-12 conference footprint that is interesting to me, and uh, Pat Forty of Sports Illustrated wrote about it most recently, but a few others have written about it over time. It, it turns out that a Utah player, tight end Dalton Kincaid is the player. A Utah football player was offered approximately a million dollars by the Alabama Collective, one of the collective groups that is associated with Alabama. Remember Nick Saban, the Alabama coach, uh, going high and mighty this last summer, or the run-up to the season in which he started talking about you know, who's using a collective? Who's trying to buy a player? Who is it buying a player? What is the, you know, what is the biggest issue? Name, image, likeness. But name, you know, name, image, likeness isn't the problem. The problem is that you have some programs that don't play by the rules that others play. So apparently Utah's Dalton Kincaid, the great tight end who caught like 16 passes over the weekend against USC, was offered... Uh, approximately a million dollars by a fan collective or a booster collective associated with Alabama. And Mark Harlan, the Utah athletic director, found out about it, took matters into his own hands. Apparently what he did is he reached out and he called Greg Byrne, who is the athletic director at Alabama, former Arizona AD. So Harlan knew him from his time in the Pac-12 conference. And he reached out and he said, hey, we got a problem here. Uh, I don't know if you knew about this, but you have a booster collective that is apparently, you know, meddling with one of my players, and I need you to knock it off. And Greg Byrne at Alabama is a good guy. He is uh, the son of Bill Byrne, the former Oregon athletic director, and he also spent some time at Oregon State. He's been in this conference, so he's familiar with the Pac-12, and uh, apparently he told the booster collective to stand down. I mean, look, you talk about, the problems that are facing college athletics. And Kyle Whittingham uh, is, has talked about this at length at Utah. You know, you look at the booster collective money, the NIL money, and you can pretty much right now uh, assume that within a couple of few years, you're going to find that the top 15, top 20 schools in the top 25 are all going to be schools that are outpaying others. It'll be largely like what you see in Major League Baseball. With the playoffs, who are the playoff teams? Who are the non-playoff teams? The Mariners were an outlier. They had the 21st highest payroll in Major League Baseball, and they made the postseason as a wild card. They're an outlier. But when you look at the NBA playoffs and you look at the Major League Baseball playoffs, anywhere where you can spend money to get a competitive advantage, you will find that it pretty much follows what you think it would follow when it comes to spending money and winning games. Now, remember Nick Saban, 
uh, not that long ago. What was it, May or May 19th, I think it was. Here he is talking about Texas A&M. You've read about them. You know who they are. I mean, we were second in recruiting last year. A&M was first. A&M bought every player on their team, made a deal for name, image, and likeness. All right, we didn't buy one player. All right, but I don't know if we're going to be able to sustain that in the future because more and more people are doing it. There you have it. More and more people are doing it, including you, Nick Saban, even if you don't know that you're doing it. Uh, Nick Saban went on to say, remember after that he had to apologize or had to come back and clarify? I, I, I didn't really say that anybody did anything wrong. You said they bought their recruiting class. I didn't say anybody did anything wrong, okay? And I've said everything I'm going to say about this. But, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, I guess the point, and I should have ne never mentioned any individual institutions. I said that before. But, you know, some kind of uniform uh, name, image, and likeness, you know, standard um, that supports some kind of e equitable uh, national competition, uh, I think is really, really important in college athletics and college football. And we've always had that, you know, whether it's equal scholarships, equal Alston money, you know, whatever it might be. And um, so that's kind of point one. You know, point two is we need some kind of transparency in name, image, and likeness deals, you know, to verify that, um, you know, players are doing what they need to do to have the opportunity to, you know, make money in name, image, and likeness. And believe me, I'm all for players making as much as they can make. There's Nick Saban, Alabama coach. I thought it was interesting over the weekend, too, because you had two of the programs that I think are – uh, highly successful, who have highly paid coaches, Nick Saban at Alabama, Lincoln Riley at USC. USC definitely in the NIL business. Million-dollar deal to Caleb Williams, million-dollar deal to Jordan Addison. You can go up and down USC's roster, and you can find, you know, it, as far as payroll is concerned in the Pac-12 conference, there's nobody spending like USC's collectives are spending to help the USC players. Uh, nobody's spending like that. And and, uh, you know, as you have it, you have a great example of both of those programs losing over the weekend, both of those highly compensated head coaches struggling late in the game with strategy mistakes. Nick Saban should have run the football, should have taken the timeouts away from Tennessee. It was arrogant to play that last possession, his, his last offensive possession, the way that he did. He left time on the clock. He left opportunity for Tennessee. And Lincoln Riley at USC did the same damn thing late in the game. After Utah scores, gets the two-point conversion and goes ahead, I kept waiting for Lincoln Riley to kind of come out and, uh, you know, play for a field goal there. And the truth is, like, they were playing for, you know, let's get the ball down the field, let's get the ball in Jordan Addison's hands, let's get the ball in uh, Mario Williams' hands. But the truth is that USC's kicker is a walk-on kicker who doesn't have a bunch of proof of performance. People were buzzing about it in the press boxes. USC was receiving the kick. Somebody said, hey, do they have a kicker? And the beat reporter for the LA Times went, they got a walk-on kicker. So it was clear to me late in those games that for all the money that is spent on coaching, for all the money, $110 million contract for Lincoln Riley, 18 bedrooms, 14 bathrooms, Nick Saban and his deal, lifetime deal, uh, the success that he has had in the SEC and at Alabama, uh, for all of the money spent on coaching, for all of the money that is spent by collectives on players, Tennessee and Utah walked off winners on Saturday night. It was interesting, and I think it was a win for sort of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the outliers in college football because Utah doesn't have a collective paying 
It's tied in a million dollars. Utah's just trying to find a running back. Um, and in Tennessee, trust me, they'll get there and they'll have their day when it comes to collective money. But I keep looking and thinking about what you know Kyle Whittingham has said. He he essentially is saying, look, everything you see in professional sports, the teams that spend money that have the payroll are going to be successful. You're going to see that mirrored in college athletics. I don't think it's good for the game. I'm concerned about where it's going. I don't know if you can regulate it like Nick Saban is saying, hey, you need to regulate this, at least be transparent. Are these guys doing what they're supposed to do to make the money? Because in the end, uh, I think you're left with um, the idea that, hey, if you do regulate this, what's to keep these for collectives from going you know, sort of under the table with some of these players like they always did back in the day? Like booster collectives are not new. Just the idea that they're out in the sunshine is new. Like we've seen booster collectives at – Places like Memphis and Kentucky and other places in uh, major college basketball. We've seen uh, envelopes with $5,000 or $10,000. We've read the stories. You've seen the story about the Adidas executives and the inducements that were offered. And, of course, Nike has had its moments, too. So I think the only difference now is this stuff is supposed to be happening out in the open with a bunch of sunshine on it. But the truth is, like, you know, I read that story and then I find out, you know, this story has been reported by the Utah media as well, that, you know, that, that great tight end that caught 16 balls over the weekend. It was the second best performance by a tight end in NCAA history. Like Dalton Kincaid's 16 receptions, I think he was too shy of the national record in major college football for a tight end. And, and he could have broke it. He could have beat it. Like it was just a magnificent performance by Utah's tight end. But in the end, like how close was that kid from accepting a million-dollar deal from an Alabama booster collective? And if that had happened, do we have two different results on Saturday? Do you have USC pulling out the win at Utah? And do you have Alabama throwing the football to Dalton Kincaid and beating Tennessee? It, you know, I don't think there's a greater example of what could have been than reading that story and looking back into Saturday's weekend and thinking about everything that could have gone differently. we got a great radio show for you today. If you're a Duck fan, if you're a Beaver fan, if you're a Viking fan, if you are a fan of the Pac-12, if you're a Blazer fan, i got everything for you. This, this station is not home of the Ducks or the Beavers. It's not home of the Blazers. It's not home of the Portland State Vikings. It's just home of the truth. We're going to visit with Brian Howell of the Boulder Daily Camera. He covers Colorado football. What is going on in Colorado? How different are they? Are they dangerous coming to Research Stadium on Saturday? Or was that just a win against a bad Cal team at home last week that felt good to people in Boulder? We'll, we'll check in with Brian Howell about that. Plus, uh, later in the show, we'll go to Los Angeles. Chip Kelly coming to Autzen Stadium. Chip Kelly and UCLA, and we'll visit with Ben Bolch of the LA Times. He covers UCLA football. He'll be with us in the 4 o'clock hour. Bruce Barnum, Portland State coach, later. So much to say in and around it. I don't know if I'm going to get it all in in today's show, but I'm sure going to try. I want you to leave it here. you got the BFT statewide. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Excited to see UCLA and Oregon on Saturday. Also, Oregon State at home against Colorado. Big game. Tickets are in 
High demand at Reeser Stadium again this week. As long as the Beavers continue to win, I think they will be. I wrote today at johnconzano.com about Chip Kelly. Told some stories. Uh, Oregon twice after Chip Kelly left the program for the NFL. Oregon is twice chased after Chip Kelly in their own way. They, you know, to try to revisit whether or not bringing him back is a good idea. That's a, you know, that's another circumstance, another topic. Um, I do think that Chip Kelly, had he returned to Oregon after the NFL, would have had more success at Oregon than he had at UCLA. I think it speaks more about Oregon. But um, I told the story today about Chip Kelly's dad, Paul Kelly. He was a trial lawyer. I talked to him once when Oregon was preparing for a Rose Bowl. I called him up. He was staying at home with the dog, and his wife, Jean, was coming out to the Rose Bowl to see her son, Chip, and... You know, and it was really interesting to kind of get a flavor of Chip Kelly. His dad was a uh, nice guy and, you know, solid values. You know, you could tell he really preached deeds, not words to his son. He had some rules in the household that he made the kids follow, all of that stuff. But I wrote today about the day that Paul Kelly died. It was a Friday in December of 2016. In fact, it happened about a week after Oregon had fired Mark Helfrich. Remember, Helfrich went 4-8. and eight. A lot of apologists out there saying, oh, they never should have fired Helfrich, never should have fired Helfrich. He was 4-8. and eight. He wasn't head coach material. He was a great coordinator. He was a really good position coach, an excellent quarterback coach. If Oregon could have just found a place for Mark Helfrich, he could have been on that staff and stayed on that staff forever, and he would have been a guru. But, uh, you know, he, he went 4-8, and eight and he got fired. And Paul Kelly died, and Chip Kelly happened to be in the NFL at the time with the 49ers. He happened to be 1-11 uh, that week that his dad died. And it was interesting to me. I didn't put this in the piece, but his dad was buried in a 49ers sweatsuit. He wasn't a Niner fan prior to Chip Kelly being the coach. But it was some connection that he felt with his son. So he wore a uh, 49ers sweatsuit when he was buried. And uh, Chip Kelly uh, went to Chicago over that weekend. His dad died on a Friday. They played a game on a Sunday in Chicago. And then he went from Chicago to Maine to for the funeral. His dad was 87 when he passed. And also at the funeral was a contingent of University of Oregon boosters and friends. And they were out there to pay respects to Paul Kelly. But there was also some talk about whether or not, you know, Chip Kelly would be on the table. Was he on the table? He was under contract with the Niners, and Chip had dismissed it with the media in the Bay Area saying, you know, I'm under contract, I don't go looking for jobs, and I believe him when he says that. He does seem to be a guy who's committed to what he's doing at the time until he's not committed to it. Even his departure from Oregon was done very well. Uh, People that I have talked to inside the Oregon Athletic Department, Athletic Director Rob Mullins, some of the key boosters involved, They were all informed when Chip Kelly was leaving for the NFL. It wasn't a surprise. He told them, I'm interviewing. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's where I'm going. He was very upfront with the University of Oregon uh, because I think he was grateful for what Oregon gave him, the opportunity that they gave a guy who had been at the University of New Hampshire calling plays prior to coming to Eugene. So Chip Kelly goes off um, to the funeral, and he speaks about his father, and the contingent that was there for the University of Oregon, talk to him. Now, I asked, you know, did the job ever come up? And one of the people who was there told me that it was, uh, you know, first of all, it's very difficult 
to go back to a place where you've had success and duplicate it. We know this. We have seen this happen time and again where coaches on a sequel uh, fall short. Now, Mike Riley was an outlier at Oregon State. You know, he, he was both the predecessor and the successor for De- Dennis Erickson, and guess what? It worked both times. So it's possible that Chip Kelly could have gone to Oregon and would have had the same success or better success than his first trip. Maybe he would have won a national championship. But I asked Oregon's contingent or asked a couple people, like, did it ever come up? Because you might remember Oregon had interviewed Willie Taggart. It had interviewed Brian Harson. Uh, you know, Rob Mullins, the athletic director at Oregon, was in Dallas, Texas, as part of the college football playoff selection committee. So he was doing the interviews in Dallas, I found out. But he interviewed Greg Schiano and Brian Harson and Willie Taggart. And then P.J. Fleck, who was at Western Michigan, was trying to get in on the deal. And his agent, Brian Harlan, was, you know, just banging the drum, trying to get P.J. Fleck an interview. If for no other reason than to create some buzz around P.J. Fleck, who eventually ended up at Minnesota. But, you know, P.J. Fleck wanted in on the job. He never got an interview. But Rob Owens was doing his diligence in Texas. Meanwhile, on that, on that following Tuesday, it, here comes Paul Kelly's funeral in Maine. So the contingent goes to Maine to pay their respects to Chip and his father. And... While there, the idea was, hey, you know, let's, is he interested in this job? Now, I asked somebody who was on that trip, did the job ever come up? Here's the quote I got, and it's a great quote. Quote, it's kind of like seducing an old girlfriend. Good idea, but hard to find the words. End quote. So Oregon did not talk to Chip Kelly at the time about the job. Uh, He made it clear that he was committed to the NFL, and he was also probably distracted with the passing of his father, you want to talk about, you know, a classless move, it would be offering a guy a job at, at his dad's funeral. So that didn't happen. But I can tell you this, and I reported this on this radio show and, and broke this news, that when Oregon was moving to hire Dan Lanning after the departure of Mario Cristobal, um, Oregon asked UCLA for permission to talk to Chip Kelly. I got that from UCLA during the coaching search. I reported it. It created a big splash, a bunch of debate among the fan base. Some people believed it would be the greatest thing ever to bring Chip back for part two, you know, Chip Kelly 2.0 in Eugene. Other people said, no, you can never go home, you know, sort of uh, channeling their, uh, you know, the inner uh, idea that, you know, uh, like like Thomas Wolfe wrote, uh, he wrote the, you know, the novel, You Can't Go Home Again. Like, there's just no going back. It's never the same. Some people believe that you got to leave it behind. And so there was a big debate about it. But I don't think Chip Kelly was all that interested in coming to back to Eugene for a second deal. I think his agent, David Dunn, very good agent, I think his agent was interested in getting in on that Oregon conversation because Chip was mired in a negotiation with UCLA that was going sideways at the time. Remember, he was 18 and 25 at the end of last season in his tenure at UCLA, and he wasn't getting a lot of enthusiasm from Martin Jarmond and UCLA's administration, the AD there. Uh, he wasn't getting a lot of enthusiasm for uh, you know bringing him back or giving him a big extension. But the minute Oregon inquired, I can tell you this, UCLA got very nervous. I had people at UCLA who reached out to me, asked me, do you think they're going to hire him? Are they going to offer him the job? 
they were nervous. UCLA was worried that they were going to lose Chip Kelly to Oregon second time. Now, I don't think that that ever got very serious because UCLA opened the checkbook. Immediately after that, they gave Chip Kelly a uh, – uh, they redid this year on his contract, and they gave him four years, $22 million. Includes a million-dollar retention bonus that he gets every, De- every December 15th. Uh, from And he also gets $100,000 if he makes the playoff. He gets $10,000 for every win that he gets. And he gets $50,000 for being the Pac-12 Coach of the Year. Now, I reached out to Chip Kelly shortly after uh, you know UCLA gave him that extension. And I said to him, I'm going to read I'm going to read our text exchange to you. I don't think that that he would uh, would he would be upset at it. But on December 11th, after it was announced that Dan Lanning was the Oregon coach, I texted Chip Kelly and I said, uh, it would have been fun. But then again, you probably had enough of me to last a lifetime. I hope you're well. And he shot back. I can never get too much of you. And that's Chip Kelly. Like, I think he wanted to stay at UCLA. I think he wanted to be there 100%. And I'm, I'm struck by the, the, the storylines that are going into Saturday's game. Like, it might be Chip Kelly's last game that he coaches at Auchin Stadium. Wrap your head around that. He's in the Pac-12 Conference. Oregon, if they play UCLA next year, I haven't looked at the schedule, it would be on the road because this one's at home. Uh, you know, they're leaving the conference in 2024. I doubt Oregon would want to schedule UCLA moving forward. I think that's a really interesting thing that's going to happen across the Pac-12. I don't think the Pac-12 teams are going to schedule USC or UCLA. And so there's a real uh, there's a real chance that this is it for Chip Kelly at Autzen Stadium. And he has not been successful there as a visiting coach. And I also think it's interesting to kind of look at, you know, when, or- when Chip Kelly was at Oregon, you know, I compare it to Camelot, right? You look at it, it but it's got, it's got some cobwebs on it right now. And Dan Lanning, who, much like Chip Kelly, had only been a coordinator before the University of Oregon made him a head coach, Dan Lanning now is tasked with trying to elevate Oregon beyond where it has been, where, you know, Mar- Mario Cristobal did fine, Willie Taggart was a disaster. Prior to that, Helfrich, it was a real mixed bag. You know, early on he was okay, he was good, and then later he was terrible. Uh, but it hasn't been the same since Chip Kelly left. It hasn't been the same dynamic. It hasn't been had the same energy to it. Uh, it hasn't had the same feel to it. And so I think it's interesting that, you know, Chip Kelly's undefeated and Oregon's trying to knock that over. And meanwhile, Dan Lanning's trying to establish himself in much the same way that Chip Kelly was in 2008 and 2009 and 2010, trying to establish the trajectory of his program. Uh, it is a number nine ranked UCLA team against a number 10 Oregon. It is game day. It's a 12:30 kickoff. I mean, forgive me. It feels like the Chip Kelly era at Oregon starring Chip Kelly on the visiting sideline. It's going to be a great game. I'm excited about it. Up next, though, we're going to talk about Colorado. They're visiting Research Stadium on Saturday. Tough place to play. Brian Howell of the Daily Camera in Boulder is going to join us to talk about Colorado football. Have they found new life, or was it a head fake last week against Cal? We'll talk to Brian Howell. Later in the program, Ben Bolch of the L.A. Times will join us to talk about UCLA and their matchup against Oregon. you got the BFT. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. 
Oregon State playing well right now. Defensively playing well. I like their defense. Might be the best defense in the Pac-12 conference. Uh, They will be facing Colorado on Saturday at Reeser Stadium. Therefore, Brian Howell of the Boulder Daily Camera. He's there to cover the game, and he's joining us now. Uh, What happened? Colorado found something last week, Brian. You got a winning football team there. (laughs) Yeah, they uh, found some joy and fun and energy uh, somewhere in the building. Now, give me an idea. I noticed, like, uh, you're a good follow on Twitter, but did the coach, did the interim coach gather the team before the game on the field? What was going on? Yeah, you know, it was about two hours before kickoff. And, uh, you know, I'm up in the press box and always get there pretty early. But um, I see Sanford walking out of the tunnel and, you know, there's players behind him. And all of a sudden, it's everybody behind him. And he gathers the entire team. Uh, at the middle of the, in the middle of the field, and they get in a big circle, and um, it was all the players, all the coaches, everybody, and you talked to them for a couple minutes, and then uh, you know, had them look up at the, the video board, and they they watched the hype video of kind of from practice the previous week, and just some highlights, things like that, and uh, some music, and uh, they were out there for about five six minutes or so, and then they walked back, and uh, it was just kind of one of those moments to get them geared up, I guess. I you know, in all the years I've covered, I've never seen. Uh, a coach do that you've got a coaching search going on while the end of the season is going on but i i couldn't help but notice fifty thousand colorado fans inside the stadium there at Folsom field uh, that is an incredible turnout for a team that did not have a win yet why are people showing up to see colorado well i, I should say a big part of it is it was family weekend and family weekend usually sells well um, they were tracking towards that type of attendance even you know, towards the start of the season. So that's part of it. However, I give the fans credit for they not only bought the tickets, but they showed up, used them. They wore white like, uh, you know, CU had encouraged them, let's have a white out. And uh, and they were into the game. I mean, they brought a ton of energy. And so um, I think that part of it is it was family weekend. But I think part of it is the fans were kind of excited about the change and that they kind of bought into um, all the reports of, uh, I mean, Stanford had, you know, almost two weeks of, of press conferences where he was spewing all that energy that you know, fans bought into a little bit. Yeah, I think the, the change of energy, interesting to go from Carl Durrell to Sanford. Uh, we're talking to Brian Howell of the Boulder Daily Camera. Is this an outlier? Is this just a team on a given day winning a game? Or did Colorado look like they, they found something on Saturday? You know, I, I think Saturday was the perfect storm for them to have that type of effort, you know, because – um, they could bottle all their energy. There was some an element of surprise. They did things that no team had ever seen before on film, so it was probably tough for Cal to scout them. Um, and then they had 50,000 fans behind them. Uh, they're not going to have those people at Reacher Stadium, obviously. Uh, they're going to have to find a way to bottle up their own energy and bring it on the road. But uh, there were some things schematically they did on defense that was very different. I mean, they uh, completely revamped their defense in a matter of you know, 10, 12 days. Uh, they created new positions for players. Uh, they uh, brought new energy on defense. That can travel, but obviously they've got to find a way to create their own energy in the locker room and bring that on the road. Yeah, going on the road in this conference is tough. I think you know you looked to last week. The home teams fared very well in the Pac-12. Uh, how are they approaching Oregon State? What do, What is the scuttlebutt right now as you ask Colorado players and coaches about Oregon State? Yeah, you know, a lot of it is, you know, Colorado's focused on themselves and trying to keep that energy going. But um, Sanford's very complimentary of this Oregon State team. He, um, he loves what they're doing and, and 
I think they've, they've got a great football team that, uh, you know, is certainly going to be tough to beat. Um, he, they're also worried about the elements a little bit, and uh, they played in the rain earlier this year, and, and were, they were awful in the rain. And so they're trying to do some different things to get prepared for that this week. But um, he, he was very complimentary of Oregon State and uh, kind of that toughness and the physicalness that uh, they play with. And um, so they know it's going to be a tough challenge for sure. Give me an idea of what's going on at the quarterback position. Played multiple players on Saturday. Who should Oregon State expect? Um, I don't know because, uh, you know, Owen McCown, the reason why he didn't finish the game is he got banged up. And that's why he didn't finish the game. And uh, he's still a little banged up. We got to see a little bit of practice today. Um, he was walking around a little gingerly and um, not taking a lot of the first-team reps. He was very limited in practice. And um, Stanford said today – that's going to be a game-time decision. Um, if McCown's healthy, it'll be him. Um, if not, it's going to be J.T. Shrout. Um, you know, Brendan Lewis entered the transfer portal today, so uh, they're down to – not down to, they've got other guys, but it's either one of those two guys. Brendan Lewis has started in the past, but um, it's going to be either a healthy McCown or J.T. Shrout. Now, when you look at those two guys, how are they different, and does that affect sort of what Colorado schematically does? on offense uh, and and affect the game plan? They're not as different as Shrout and Lewis were. Um, McCown and, and JT are both pocket passers. they got good arms. Uh, so I don't, I don't think it changes much schematically. Shrout's got the better arm. Uh, McCown's probably got better athleticism. And Shrout, obviously, is an older player, and so he's uh, he's been around a little bit more. Um, but, you know, McCown's the one that provided the spark to the offense uh, when he got to start a few weeks ago. Uh, but Shrout really did a great job coming off the bench the other day. Cal, the fans at Cal were really disappointed with the outcome. Wild finish, by the way, at the end there with an incredible catch and a review and then uh, what seemed to be a Cal catch that would have tied the game, but great defensive play to knock the ball away. And, of course, uh, cries after the game about Justin Wilcox and Cal because Cal fans thought they had that penciled in as a W. What do you make of Cal? You got a chance to see him up close. Yeah, you know, they've always been an interesting team to me in that um, they're just kind of that picture of mediocrity, and they have been for a long time. And I think they're one of those teams that they can win on any given Saturday and they can lose on any given Saturday. And I think that sounds cliche, but I don't think there's any team in the Pac-12 that embodies that more than Cal. I mean, I think they're so up and down. And um, I, I could see them rising up and beating a USC someday, uh, but – losing to a Colorado, and that's just the way they are. I mean, they, they're still a, a solid defense, but offensively, you know, Jack Plummer was not very good on Saturday and uh, really struggled. And, you know, even with CU's quarterback issues, they had better quarterback play than Cal the other day, and I think that was one of the biggest differences in the game. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, we got Brian Howell of the Boulder Daily Camera. Got interrupted there at the end of that. I, I just had a couple of more questions for you, Brian. Sorry about that, buddy. Uh, look, uh, no you're in the middle of a coaching search while in the middle of a college football season. Where is Colorado at sort of with this search for the next head coach? Yeah, uh, just learned today that uh, they hired a search firm uh, to help them with this, and I'm told that there has been a, a high level of interest in the job, and um, I guess you could define that. Uh, everybody could have their different definitions of that, but at least according to Colorado, there's high level of interest. So um, I think they're still taking their time. Uh, they've got time. 
obviously. And, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to see any announcement, you know, before uh, probably that last week of the regular season at the earliest. And I, I would guess it's probably not until after the regular season's over. Yeah. Somebody asked me about, you know, the media rights negotiations that the conference have and how that might affect the open jobs at Colorado and Arizona State. And I, I just feel like, you know, those a- athletic directors probably have a sense of what their budget will be approximately. They probably have seen some dollar figures. So I'm not sold that it's going to matter, but I am kind of watching that to go, look, if they, if they start fishing in ponds that are larger than you would expect, it may be a signal that they're, you know, maybe they're pivoting to Amazon or Apple and there's a whole bunch more money out there for the athletic department. And I, I feel like Colorado's kind of, you know, it should be Washington. Like, resource-wise, is that a good approximation for what Colorado is in this conference? Yeah, I think so. And, and, and I'm not sure that the negotiations uh, impact it too much because I think is in a position where they're either in the Pac-12 or the Big 12 and – Either way, they're in a good position. Uh, not, not like the Big Ten type of position, but I don't think their situation changes a whole lot based on what happens. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, yeah. You know, I, I think either way, their their budget and resources are probably going to be about the same. Yeah, I, I think it's a hundred percent that they'll be in the Pac-12, but that's just me. And I know there's there's other noise out there. Brian, I, I appreciate you making time. I'm sorry about the interruption. And uh, look, here's what you're going to walk into. I'm going to give you, let's just have an inside baseball talk. Brian messaged me today and he said, hey, what's the press box situation at Research Stadium? And I think our listeners would love to hear this too. You get into the stadium, you got 27,000 fans on, you know, this one side of the stadium that, you know, is, is sort of the newer side of the stadium. The older side of the stadium is getting completely redone. So it's a really weird half stadium setup. It's unusually loud. The fans are right on top of, you know, Oregon State's team sideline, Brian. And so when Colorado walks in there, they're going to be on this empty side of the stadium kind of looking over at 27,000 fans that are all jammed in there, and it's essentially standing room only because of the shortage of tickets. So it's really strange, but the press box is on the Colorado, the visiting side of the field. And the press box is just a series of portable buildings that are sort of on the uh, 100 level of the concourse. So you have a great sight line as a media member. And here's a dirty little secret, and I did this at the USC-Oregon State game, and I encourage you to do this, Brian. The weather's good enough. Walk out of the press box, walk down onto the concrete steps in front of the press box, and sit where there will be seats one day. Not there now. But you essentially can sit there and watch the game like you're sitting in your living room. That's awesome. I should, I'll, I'll definitely do that. Take a picture when you're there, too. To it. I think it's, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be an interesting situation for sure. <laughs> yeah, very different. And, you know, if it's raining, forget it. Stay in the press box. But you got at least you got a portable building that you're sitting in. Oregon State does a nice job. Sean Scheffler at Oregon State, I think one of the better SIDs in the conference. And, uh, you know, I, I wish you the best. I think it's going to be a, a fun game. And Oregon State's tough to beat in that building, though. I, I, I wonder what Colorado's got, if they can seize the, keep that energy going that they had last week, or was it a one-off? I don't know. Do you have a sense? Yeah, I think they're going to keep a lot of it going. Uh, like I said, you can't bring the 50,000 fans on the road, but um, I do think that Sanford's got something going as far as the energy he's created and the, the fun atmosphere that he's created within that team. Like it. Brian Howell, Boulder Daily Camera. Thank you, Brian. Thanks. There he is. Good stuff. Didn't mean to hold him over for two segments, but he is kind enough to do that. We got Ben Bolch of the LA Times coming up at the top of the hour.
We'll talk with Bolch about uh, what is happening with UCLA and Chip Kelly. Really interesting there. Uh, Steven, do you have a feel for this game? Do you have a feel for whether or not Colorado can go into Research Stadium and win? Because I, when I looked at the schedule, I penciled it, penciled it in as a W for Oregon State. I'm, maybe it's not all the way in Sharpie, but it's in solid pencil as a W. Oregon State at home, very good. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it's in, for me it would be in a pen, almost a Sharpie. Not quite Sharpie, but pen status. You know, you look at Oregon State – just the splits between home and a road. Uh, away from Research Stadium, they're allowing giving up 33, almost 34 points a game at home. It's just under 15. That's an 18-point difference with the defenses. You talk about how good that defense is. It really seems like when they're at home at Research Stadium, they're just a lot more comfortable. They get after the quarterback. They make some plays in the secondary. And we saw them against USC. We really shut down that, you know, that offense. And then when they went to Utah, they were giving up big plays on the road. So I think... The fact that it's in Reeser, I think Oregon State should handle Colorado pretty easily. Yeah, and I think the one thing that gives me pause about Oregon State in this game, like I agree with you, they they played USC punch for punch. I think the home field, I said it last week in the conference, the home teams were winning like 75% of the games and they were covering 71% of the time as a home favorite. Uh, it was the numbers were ridiculous, and it, it, that held up. By the way, over the weekend, Colorado won at home, Utah won at home, uh, Oregon State won at home. Uh, you, you started to look at the teams that were playing at home in the Pac-12. They're all winners. I think that home field advantage is worth somewhere between seven and ten points in the Pac-12. But here's the here's what gives me pause for Oregon State. I've been here before with this team. I've been here before with this program. I was here last year with this program. They were playing Cal and Colorado in successive weeks, and they were sitting on five wins. Here we are. They're going to play Colorado. They're going to play Washington. They're going to play Cal. They're sitting on five wins. They went to Berkeley last year, and they laid an egg, played their worst game, I thought, of the season. Then they turned around and went to Colorado and got beat in overtime. And Colorado, until last week, hadn't won another conference game since beating Oregon State last season. So... I've been here before with the Beavers. I want to see them follow through. I want to see them win a game we expect them to win. I want to see them play well in successive weeks. I don't think they played very well two weeks ago in beating Stanford, but I thought they played really well on Saturday night. A lot of identity in there, very tough defensively. I think they have the best defense in the conference right now. They're playing the best, but I need to see it. I need to see them do this against a Colorado team that is – anemic on offense yeah we need to see it and this has been a season for Oregon State where they've taken steps right we talked about week one against Boise State how big of a game that was can Oregon State get to one and no Jonathan Smith hadn't done that he does that then in the next week go to Fresno State can you get that big win on the road they do that they win by three points on the Coletto touchdown so they've taken some steps this season now I know it was disappointing losing to USC and Utah but I, I think with them being at home you know I'm looking at uh, teamrankings.com they have predictive Uh, points above average on home and road, they're 14 points better above average at home than they are on the road. So you talk about the difference between, you know, home and road splits this season in the Pac-12. I think Oregon State just really is like the poster child for that, is that at home they are a completely different team. And so I just don't think Colorado will be ready for that uh, going up to Reeser. Yeah, I want to see it. Uh, I believe you, but I want to see it. Meanwhile, you got the Ducks at Autzen Stadium, Dan Lanning, Chip Kelly, two-week run up to this game feels like a super bowl chip kelly says it's a super bowl well this feels like a super bowl with the the week off before the week of the game 
uh, both teams preparing. I'm a little concerned for Oregon in that Chip Kelly has had two weeks to prepare. I might rethink that after I see a quarter or a half of this game, but I'm a little nervous. I think Oregon has the home field. Uh, I think that Oregon has the most complete team on both sides of the ball, defensively, offensively. If we want to rate Oregon, you're going to rank them. I think offensively they have a top three offense, and I think defensively they have a top two or three defense in the conference. Nobody else is built that way. Washington is the greatest example. Great offense, no defense. Oregon State, great defense, struggle to score points on offense. Um, Cal uh, in the middle. Uh, Arizona, really good offense, terrible defense. Like There are some teams that are just half a team in this conference. Oregon's the most complete team. Oregon's got it on both sides of the ball. But what will they do against Chip Kelly and UCLA with Chip Kelly having the extra week of prep? That is a big question. Cam and Eugene is called in and listening on Fox Sports Eugene. Cam, what's on your mind? Wasn't the point I called to make, but real quick, in my memory, I think teams have done what better against Chip Kelly when they've had more time to prepare. We always ran them ragged on the short weeks of preparation. They could never maintain their defensive assignments. I like the extra week for prep. I also liked your article this morning that I read about Chip Kelly coming back. I thought that was interesting. I was viewing it from the lens of Dan Lanning, and you're right. He's got There's going to be one game before Chip goes off to the Big Ten, and if you're Dan Lanning, you know, you got to prove yourself. Yeah. You're in Chip Kelly's office in the building Chip Kelly built, and you get one shot now to prove that you're the coach of the future and not the coach Oregon could get. And if you don't win, you've got a 300-pound visor on your back until you somehow meet them down the road at a Rose Bowl or whatever it is and get that visor off your back. And yeah. it's just, I think this is a big measuring stick for Dan Lanning this weekend. Yeah, look, I thought week one against Georgia was a, was a big test for Lanning, and I don't think he passed it, okay? I think Georgia had better players, but I also think uh, at, now that I've seen Georgia play, Oregon didn't play well in week one, despite the fact that they probably lose the game even if they play their best game, but Oregon didn't play well. Uh, and, and then I thought there were some questions answered. Like, I think Oregon really played well in the home game against BYU. I think Oregon has made some statements about where they are as a team in the last, you know, couple of few weeks. And uh, if I'm Dan Lanning, I'm feeling pretty good about where they are. And Lanning will join us on Thursday's show, by the way. Um, he'll be right here in the, uh, coming up in the 4 o'clock hour on Thursday. But I, I, I'll go further with what the caller said. Like, he's saying he gets one shot. I don't, I'm not going to limit it to one shot because – I think there's a possibility that we could be watching the conference championship game. Like, the, you know, we could see this matchup again in Vegas. So I think it's really interesting. Just like we saw Utah and Oregon play last year, this game has that, a little bit of that feel. I've seen everybody now in person. Okay, I've seen all these teams. I, I think Utah's good but not great. I think USC is a great example of a team that is phenomenally talented on offense, has some real defensive problems. Uh, I think those will be exploited. I think UCLA is better than USC. I think uh, UCLA is better than Utah. And I, I want to know who's better between Oregon and UCLA. Because I think UCLA has a really good shot to get back to Vegas, even if they lose this game. Much the same way that Oregon last year went to Utah and got beat bad, then made it back to Vegas and got another shot, I think we're going to look at UCLA potentially being in that position this this season in fact this week that of course brings us to our big splash it is the one thing that you need to know 
The one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Well, Adam Silver, NBA commissioner, wrote an open letter to fans that he published uh, about 30 minutes ago. Basically, commissioner to fan, he said, look, the season begins tonight. He's excited about it. He's selling a whole bunch of things like the apps that he's got going and other things. But Adam Silver, NBA commissioner, trying to connect with his fans. I think that's important. I think it's good. I wish more commissioners would do it. I don't necessarily see Adam Silver as like man of the people. Uh, because, you know, he still exists in that world that David Stern, com- you know, created once upon a time. But I think it's a good effort by the NBA commissioner to get out and try to connect with the fan base and connect with fans. Roger Goodell should do it. Rob Manfred should do it. George Klyovkov should do it. If you're a commissioner of a league, pay attention to this. All your fans really want is to feel like they're connected and engaged and, and feel like, you know, they've got your ear. Uh, NBA season in full swing, Blazers. Among the teams, uh, trying to matter. And by the way, we talked payroll. We talked about NIL off the top of the show. Uh, Blazers' payroll this season is 14th in the league. And it's re- really interesting to, to kind of look at the teams that are in front of them. Uh, most of them are playoff teams. Coming up, Ben Bolch of the LA Times. Terrific job as a beat reporter. Covers Chip Kelly and UCLA. What should Oregon expect on Saturday? Bolch tells us next. We- BFFT From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. I love storylines. I love good storylines. I love to read reporters who can really write and report. Ben Bolch of the LA Times can do it, gets it done. Chip Kelly, UCLA, coming back to Autzen Stadium. Storylines there. UCLA leaving the Pac-12 conference. Is this Chip's last visit to Autzen Stadium? Possible storyline there. How good are the Bruins? Ben Bolch, LA Times, joining us. You having fun this week? Yeah, I've been having fun the whole season. <laughs> it's been quite the ride. Uh, you know, I, I can't say it was totally unexpected. I, I thought this was, uh, you know, in the neighborhood of a 10-2 and two team, just given uh, the, the talent and experience they had coming back. Um, and, you know, the one thing that Chip Kelly had not had was a good defense, and it looks like they might finally have that this year. Give me an idea. With the, the change in coordinators, is it is it personnel? Is it scheme? Is it some of both? It's some of both. And, you know, they got, uh, you know, one of the – Big factors this year is, is the transfer portal for UCLA. I mean, they brought in their three best pass rushers are all new players. Uh, the Murphy Twins out of North Texas, and then Layatu Latu, the great comeback story out of Washington. Those guys have been real difference makers, and this is their first year in the program. Um, kind of thought in spring that these guys are going to be playmakers, but you're never quite sure until you see it, uh, and they certainly have been. When I look at this matchup, uh, obviously the eyes and the ears go to Chip Kelly. And, you know, we know he's played uh, against Oregon multiple times, been to Autzen Stadium a couple of times. But this is obviously his best team and feels like a team that really wants to contend. The The offensive side of the ball, Dorian Thompson-Robinson, appears to be very comfortable, not making a whole bunch of mistakes. What has changed for Thompson-Robinson in this in this last year? Well, he's basically kind of bottled the quarterback we saw in his last three games of last 
season when they just steamrolled USC and then uh, put it to Colorado and Cal, and he's carried that over the first half of the season. He's been consistent. He's been prolific. I think he's got, you know, nine touchdowns his last two games, seven passing, two rushing, uh, and he's just not making mistakes. You know, his uh, completion percentage is, is in the high 70s. So we're seeing the best version of him, and we're seeing it over, you know, what looks like it's going to be the course of a full season here. Yeah, it, it, he's got some weapons, too. There, You know, I, I was watching the Utah game and thought, gosh, he's really got four or five players that can hurt you with a 50-yard big play, an explosion play, so to speak. Uh, the running back, Charbonneau, the receivers, the tight ends, it feels like Chip really has that going, yeah? Yeah, and it's a good thing. You know, I, I should have mentioned Charbonneau. He's been, uh, you know, he's, he's leading the Pac-12 in rushing. Uh, you know, gives Dorian a, a, a great compliment. But uh, one thing that's interesting for people who watch this team closely, they're passing a lot more this year. Uh, and I think part of that's the fact is that they don't have that number two running back they had last year in Britton Brown, that true uh, compliment to Charbonnet. But also that, you know, uh, Dorian's just been so good that they want to rely on that as much as they can. And, uh, you know, everybody was Wondering, you know, with Greg Dulcich, who caught his first career touchdown pass last night in the NFL, uh, gone, and Kyle Phillips gone, if there were going to be enough weapons for Dorian. Uh, and he certainly has them. Uh, the, the top one uh, being another transfer, Jake Bobo from Duke, who's just been really outstanding, a 6'5", uh, Stanford-type ty- uh, tight receiver with that size and great hand. So uh, they really have not missed a beat. And as I said, Dorian has made the most of it. For Oregon, this is an easy one. Like Dan Lanning, this is an opportunity for him to sort of exercise a demon or step beyond the Chip Kelly shadow at Oregon and beat him head-to-head. And, you know, the winner of this game probably has the inside track to get to Vegas in the conference championship game. That's all for Oregon. What's at stake for UCLA? Well, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, they keep warning they're, they're – going to be in starting to be in the CFP discussions. Uh, you know, everybody says Rose Bowl. UCLA hasn't been the Rose Bowl since January 1st, 99, but, you know, they could do even better than that. They, they win this game. They beat SC. Uh, I don't really see any other big challenges barring some, some huge stumble. Uh, you know, they're basically two big game wins away from, you know, being in discussion of those, those four final, uh, final four teams. And, wow, you know, what a turnaround based on what we had seen uh, in Coach Kelly's first four seasons in UCLA where, you know, it was such a slow build. Last year they had a good but not a great season, uh, but really uh, could be a breakthrough here. At 6-0, and is Chip Kelly more fun, less fun, or about the same as he <laughs> was when he was losing? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. He's actually been uh, he's been a lot of fun this season. You know, we we've butted heads as we talked about um, when I've come on the show in the past. Um, but you know, he's he really has been fun. He he's brought out his rise sense of humor to the full extent. Uh, he's he's you know he's made jokes. He's not parsing questions. He's not being contrarian like he likes to be. Um, he's been really agreeable, and uh, it's been a side of him that, to, to be honest, has been uh, a lot more fun to cover. Ben Bolch, L.A. Times. Look at the conference for us. You know, it's it's nice to get an outside-in perspective, or at least maybe a Southern California perspective. What do you see happening in this conference? Who do you think gets to Vegas and plays for the championship? 
Well, I mean, if I had to say it right now, I would be, you know, I think the winner of this game here Saturday is pretty much going to be locked into Vegas. And then the other two contenders, obviously, are Utah and SC, barring something unforeseen. I mean, there's still a couple teams, uh, you know, a game behind them. But I think these are our four teams here. They're the two teams are going to come out of these four. Uh, so that makes Saturday's game just so big uh, for both teams because uh, I, I just can't see a way – uh, barring something really unforeseen with, you know, a starting quarterback going down, uh, that the, the winner of this game is not going to be in Vegas uh, in early December. I've seen USC a couple times. Uh, and, you know, I thought the performance two weeks or two weekends ago against Utah was the most impressive performance by any team in the conference. It was was everything just clicking for US, uh, UCLA that day against Utah or – was that sort of like the direction they were heading all along, or what happened? Yeah, I wasn't really that surprised, to be honest. I mean, they looked pretty much that good the previous week against Washington. I think Washington was the game where it's like, okay, you know, they played a really soft non-conference schedule, beat down Colorado like everybody thought they could. Now let's see what they're made of against uh, Washington. And they, you know, pretty much took it to them. And to me, that was kind of like the – okay, you know, this team's got something. Um, obviously, you know, doing it against the defending conference champion is, is takes it up to another level. But based on what I'd seen in that Washington game, I was not surprised. I think this is a, a really, really good team. Uh, you're almost surprised when they don't score an offense. They're that good. Uh, and their defense is, uh, is forcing turnovers uh, in a way that, you know, I know that Coach Kelly's Oregon teams uh, were, were known for. Uh, they're kind of getting back to that. Uh, and that's that's been a recipe for for a high level of success. Ben Bolch, Los Angeles Times, our guest. Uh, with UCLA and USC set to leave the conference, has that talk sort of settled down? All the talk about the Big Ten, all of that. It, and you know, I, I imagine Chip Kelly and the players are very focused. But what about administrators? What about fans? You know, what's your email inbox look like? Yeah, you know, I think there's. This uh, next UC Regents meeting uh, coming up in November, uh, I think there's a little bit of, you know, wanting to get this thing behind them. And I guess I should have prefaced it by saying, you know, the Regents have been threatening to try to block UCLA's move uh, to, to the Big Ten. We don't know that they will, but they said that, you know, all options are on the table. That's a direct quote. Um, and there really has not been any clarity on that. Now, I think that the expectation is that this November meeting – uh, you know, I think that they, my ex, personal expectation is that they're going to kind of wa- wave the white flag and, and everybody's going to kind of move on. I know that in the Morgan Center, which is the athletic complex at UCLA, that's the result they're looking for. They want some clarity on this. They want to move on. Uh, recruiting weekends or, or signing days are coming up, I should say. And they want to be able to go into those with, with this thing completely uh, clear and, 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 you know, everybody knowing what's going to happen going forward. So, uh, a little bit of anxiety, but I think that, you know, that's the, that's the hope is that this thing can go full steam ahead after this next Regents meeting. I think you're right in that I don't see the Regents telling them, hey, you can't go, like they're not blocking it. My, my, I'm curious to see if the Regents will try to penalize them in a way that gives UCLA a second thought at all. Is there a number that would make the UCLA, you know, make the uh, university community go, hey, that's a little too steep. Maybe we're better in the Pac-12, or is that bridge blown up behind UCLA in your mind? 
Yeah, I mean, everybody talks about the, uh, you know, concessions to cow, uh, some kind of flat fee or maybe a percentage. I don't, I mean, it, it would have to be pretty astronomical, I think, to give Martin Jarman, the athletic director, any real pause. I mean, I think he sees this move to the big town. I mean, he said it publicly. This is the way to the future. This is the way we secure, uh, you know, our Olympic sports teams, which, you know, could have frankly been on the chopping block if, if they had stayed in the Pac-12. Um, so, you know, I, I, I just don't see, barring something unforeseen, I don't see any kind of uh, number being thrown out there that's going to uh, stop this move. Ben Bolch, L.A. Times. Uh, it, it's interesting. Do you think the Pac-12 teams will schedule UCLA and USC for non-conference games when they're in the Big Ten? I haven't asked anybody that. I'm I'm fascinated by whether or not there will be some kind of uh, you know, uh, you know the the teams getting together and colluding to say, hey, look, don't schedule them, don't make it easy on them. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, I asked Mick Cronin about Arizona preserving that basketball rivalry, and he said, you know, that's way down the uh, down down the uh, path to, in the future. That's something I hadn't thought about. I think the one thing that everybody would kind of like to see if they could get over the bitterness a little bit was would be for UCLA to preserve the cow. Uh, Cal rivalry, maybe a uh, rivalry, maybe play them in all sports is a little bit of an olive branch, you know, uh, you know, give them some money to come down to the Rose Bowl, go up to go up to Memorial Stadium, uh, preserve that rivalry in all sports. I think that that could be uh, something that, that we could see here potentially. All right. UCLA looked great at home. Any concern about the Bruins on the road here against, a, uh, you know, an opponent that is a very decent opponent? Yeah, you know, um, I mean, clearly this would be the most impressive win of Chip Kelly era if they could get it. Uh, they've been piping in the crowd noise at practice this week. They're obviously concerned about that. You know, somebody was saying today that there could be some rain. They haven't really experienced that. So there's some, some factors in play here. They've only played one road game, and it was at Colorado, which, you know, is a decent environment, but nothing like Austin. So, you know, this is going to be something new, especially for, you know, a lot of these players that haven't played in an environment like that. Even the Murphy Twins, who came from North Texas, haven't played in a in a high-level game like this. So I'll be interested to see how they respond. I don't think they're the type of team that's going to get rattled or fold uh, easily. So, you know, I'm expecting one of these 41 to 38 games, last team with the ball wins type of situation. UCLA and USC will play later in the season. Uh, I think UCLA beats the pants off USC unless there's a key injury. Has there been a lot of talk already, a lot of anticipation for that game? Absolutely. In fact, you know, a lot of people were just hoping that, uh, you know, they would both be unbeaten coming into the game at the Rose Bowl in November and what an atmosphere that would generate. You know, no matter what, it's going to be a a great uh, atmosphere and a great game Um, and still a lot at stake, you know, depending on what happens here in the next few weeks. But, Certainly, there's you know scenarios where they could they could play November 19th and then play again a couple of weeks later in early December in uh, in Vegas. So yeah, this this game's going to probably be uh, the most anticipated uh, SC UCLA game uh, probably in a few decades. Yeah, it's interesting because last season we saw that right. We saw Oregon play Utah, then Oregon play Utah for the title. Uh, I think among the four teams, we could get UCLA Oregon again in Vegas. We could get. Uh, Oregon USC, we could get Oregon Utah, we could have UCLA Utah. I mean, I think that's all out there. And then on the outside in, Oregon State fans are going to at me here. Oregon State still in play here if they win out. Um, it's it's a lot of fun. I think this conference is more fun than it's been. You're having fun. I'm having more fun too, Ben. 
Yeah, you know, those pesky divisions were causing a lot of unnecessary problems. Right? I mean, now it's wide open. Uh, you know, anybody can, can get there. There's different pathways, and, you know, that helps a team like Oregon State. So you're right, fun is the word. All right, give me this. Uh, our our uh, degenerate gamblers listening to the show are going to want to know what Ben Bolch, what your <laughs> feel is. Where would you lean here if a friend leans over and says, Ben, how are you feeling about this game? Who do you like? Yeah, you know, that's that's the million-dollar question, right? I, I You know, I, I just have a feeling this, is a, this feels like a special UCLA year. Um, you know, the Chip Kelly's gone back twice. You know, got really throttled in 2018 and 2020. They could have won the game they, with a backup quarterback in the COVID year. I think this is their year to do it. I, I'm going to say, you know, it's going to be a great game. There's going to be times when Oregon's going to look like it's going to win the game. But I think, uh, you know, I, I got a feeling you say he's going to pull this thing out. You know, like I said, 41 to 38 would be my pick for the Bruins. There it is, Ben Bolch, LA Times. Hey, I will see you in the press box. Uh, travel safely. Thank you for what you do, Ben. I appreciate you making time. All right, John, thanks so much. There he is from the L.A. Times, Ben Bolch. He's picking UCLA. Here's what I'm thinking, okay? Look, Oregon's not perfect. I, I've looked at Oregon all year, and I thought, Oregon's going to lose a game, maybe a game they shouldn't lose. Like, I just have seen some things that tell me that, you know, Oregon's not perfect. None of these teams are perfect. Like, I just went to Salt Lake City, and I watched Utah play USC. Two really good teams. Two highly ranked teams. Truth is, USC's got some flaws. Like Caleb Williams, he looked great. But USC's defense couldn't stop Utah. I think all of these teams are flawed. So I really do think it's going to come down to whichever team has the focus. Chip Kelly's got focus. Keep an eye on that. I'm not sure Lincoln Riley and USC were focused uh, when they went to Salt Lake City. I'm not sure of it. I was in their team hotel. I ran into the guy who was doing bed check. He was running around the hotel at 9.30 at night trying to round up players. I'm not saying they were out partying because they weren't, but I wondered about the focus of USC. Uh, Chip Kelly will have UCLA locked in. He will. But here's what I, what I think about UCLA. I was not a believer after their non-conference schedule. Who would be? Bowling Green? Alabama State? You know, come on. That, like, nobody was looking at what UCLA did in the non-conference schedule, South Alabama. And, you know, they beat South Alabama 32-31. They, you know, they're barely ahead of Bowling Green at halftime. I left that going, ooh, they're not very good. And then they went to Colorado and won. Okay. I was not a believer still after four games. Mostly because they hadn't played anybody yet. Then they got Washington on that Friday night. And they blasted Washington early and held on 40-32. to 32. And I went, okay, they can play. They can score some points. They look interesting. And it took five games for me to say that. I still picked against them when they hosted Utah. Again, they were at home in that game. They beat Utah by 10. This is the first real test for Chip Kelly's team. Forget Utah at home. Forget Washington at home. You're at home where you're 7 to 10 points better than you should be in the Pac-12. I'm still, eh, I'm leaning towards, hey, they're really good. I don't think they're great, though. I think Dorian Thompson-Robinson, a fifth-year senior at quarterback, gives them an element of expertise and experience and uh, athleticism and talent that makes them dangerous. 
I also think they've added some elements in the transfer portal, like the two pass rushers. Uh, they're interesting. But they've got to go to Autzen Stadium and prove it. They have the same task that I am flipping onto Dan Lanning's team. They failed miserably in week one, Oregon did, against Georgia. Now, they could have maybe played their best football game and still lost by 21. But losing by 46 points against Georgia, it's like Grandma told you. You only get one chance to make a first impression. Here comes opportunity number two if there was one in a college football season. There, people are going to be looking at UCLA going, can Oregon, is Oregon any good? Does Oregon deserve to be back in the playoff discussion or no? This is the game. This is it. This is where they answer these questions. If Oregon can beat UCLA in a convincing fashion at Autzen Stadium, uh, you better believe that the conversation coming out of that is going to be, what has Oregon fixed since week one? How different are they? Well, how have they evolved? What happened? Bo Nix is playing so much better. Uh, forget the competition. You know, it's going to be, that's the narrative. I want your phone calls, 503-417-7575. I want you to tell me who you think wins this game, who gets to Vegas and plays for the championship in the Pac-12, and is Oregon State anywhere in this conversation? If you're the Ducks, do you want to play USC, UCLA in a championship game, or do you join the rest of the Pac-12 in saying, hey, leave these defectors out. Let's see Utah, Oregon, or let's see Oregon State, Oregon. Still a possibility, by the way. That one is still out there. Could happen. You got the BFT. I want your phone calls, 503-417-7575. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. What's going to happen Saturday Onsen Stadium? What's going to happen in Vegas on December 2nd? Who's going to end up there? I have a hunch of what's going to happen. I want to hear from you at 503-417-7575. Stephen, I want your take as well. But let's go out to the phone lines. Mark in Portland has been waiting. Mark in Portland, what's going to happen? God only knows. It's going to be fun to watch. I mean, um, I, I did. I thought it was possible this year that somebody could get to Vegas with two losses, and it, you know that could happen. But uh, the UCLA game is intriguing to me because uh, although your uh, screener there told me uh, Oregon's got a home winning streak going, it seems to me uh, they lose a lot of big games at home. I think the last time they lost to Stanford was 2018. They were in contention. They lost their two biggest games probably ever. Uh, as far as national championship hopes in 2012, Marcus Mariota's redshirt freshman year. And 2001, uh, they lost to Stanford. They also lost to USC in 2011, which gave them their second loss. So Chip scares me, John, because for four years at Oregon, he lost one conference road game in four years. His last three years, he didn't lose a road game. So when you said that he's going to be have his team ready to play, there's evidence of that. <laughs> So I'm nervous. What I'm going to do is bet the money line on UCLA. Mm. And if they win, I win money. I'm happy. And if the Ducks win and I lose, you know, a couple of scoots, it's no big deal. You're covering, <laughs> you're, you're hedging with your emotions. Yes, sir. I do that a lot. <laughs> I love the that. Line is, the money line is the key to that problem. There you, so, there you go. I, I love forward. it. I'm just, right. hopefully I'll just keep losing and pay the Ducks right into the, 
playoffs. I love that. All right, Mark in Portland, appreciate that. See his strategy there, Stephen? He's saying if uh, he'll bet UCLA, that way if UCLA wins, he'll be disappointed for his team, but he'll be richer for it. Yeah, I respect that. I respect that. Like, But people in fantasy football, like they don't pick their t- people on their team because they don't want to root against them, right? Like you root, or root for them. and you know, So I, 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 I get that. I think it's uh, I think it's a lot of fun. What do you think is going to happen? What's your take? Yeah, I, this is going to be an interesting game because we saw Oregon when they played BYU. They really jumped on them in the first half. But UCLA has been a really good first half team, and so I don't know that Oregon is going to be able to jump up on them and get up, you know, a quick 10, 14 points like we saw against BYU. I think UCLA will be able to push back and either score a touchdown. Um, as you guys are talking about, UCLA's offense is really good this season, or the defense is going to stop Oregon a little bit. So. I think right now I'm leaning towards UCLA plus the points. Like, I think it's going to be a very close game. And, you know, I think as time goes on, you guys could probably talk me into UCLA on the money line. I think that this UCLA team is really good, and they've beaten some good teams when they weren't expected to. And I think this is another game where we kind of think Oregon's going to come in at Austin Stadium and control this game. But UCLA's been been ready for these type of things, and – uh I really like what Chip Kelly's been doing over there. I like what Chip Kelly's been doing. I have questions for both of these teams, though. And uh, the best win between these two teams, in your mind, is it UCLA at home two Saturdays ago against Utah? Or is it at home against Washington? Like, the Washington win doesn't look that good anymore. And meanwhile, I'm looking over at Oregon, and I'm going, okay, where's Oregon's best win? I mean, I'm I'm doing a lot of that right now because – they have, nobody's played anybody. Yeah, I think the Utah game, probably the best win out of all these games. And then, you know, you look back at the BYU game, I think that was a really impressive win. BYU was coming off a big win over Baylor, but at the same time, now they're 4-3. and three, So how good is that win? Yeah, I think UCLA has the probably the top two wins uh, out of these teams right now. Oregon's opener against Georgia is looming in my mind. I'm going to ask Dan Landing this on Thursday, but obviously Oregon got embarrassed in that game. But I'm wondering, does that game help Oregon at all? Playing against Georgia, did it help them when they suited up two weeks later at home against BYU? Did it help them when they went to Pullman and scored 29 points in the fourth quarter? Did it help them at Arizona? Will it help them this weekend? Can you get something out of a bad loss? Yeah, I think you can. Um, you know, you just you go back to that Georgia game, you're never going to see a team like that unless you're playing in the college football playoff again. So... You have faced the best athletes, and UCLA, yes, they have some great athletes. They have some really good players, but they're not on Georgia's level. So I think it can help you, um, and just knowing that, you know, what you have to do to compete in that game. But Oregon was not competitive from the get-go in that game, so they know they have to play at a certain level to compete with these top teams, and UCLA is proving to be a top ten, a, you know, top team in the top ten right now. Like, I, I got a lot of respect for Utah last week, but let's be, tru- let's be truthful. USC didn't look great at Corvallis playing against Oregon State. They looked vulnerable. They have looked vulnerable numerous times. We've talked about that. The USC apologists who might be running around in a USC uniform or a costume on Halloween. Or a gator costume. Or a gator costume. Those people, they didn't see it, okay? They didn't want to see it. USC had it coming. You could see it coming. They weren't, that's not a complete team. It's, you know, transfer portal Palooza. It's a transfer portal all-star team. And great, they're, they'd win every seven-on-seven seven competition. But Utah punched them in the nose last Saturday and probably should have beat them by more than one score if Utah hadn't fumbled the ball inside the five-yard line. So 
I think right now these two teams playing on Saturday, UCLA and Oregon, I think they're they're definitely competing for who is the best team in the Pac-12. Yeah, no doubt. And UCLA, the thing about that Utah game was they you know they were the ones pushing Utah around. I think that offensive line of UCLA has been really good this year. Same with Oregon, obviously. Oregon's strength is that offensive line, but. I, usually I think of UCLA as you know a quote-unquote soft team, but I don't think they're necessarily soft this year. I think they're pretty strong mentally, and they're strong physically. So I think they'll be able to battle Oregon uh, down in the trenches, and that's why I think this is going to be a really, really good game. The, the, the big question is, John, is if Oregon somehow wins this game, are they going to get respect nationally? Because UCLA is getting respect nationally right now. If Oregon goes and beats UCLA on Saturday, are they considered to be a top five, six team and in contention for a college football playoff bid? I think I think the Pac-12. I, you know, I was looking at this this morning, and I was kind of like objectively looking at the SEC teams and uh, the Big Ten teams, and uh, you know, is anybody in the ACC in this? And I I actually don't think the Pac-12 has one of the best four teams. I and I think if somebody gets in, it. Probably that that team that gets in in the number four spot, if it's a Pac-12 team, is probably going to get embarrassed, just like Oregon got embarrassed in the mm-hmm. opening week. But I'm still going to sit here and go, look, if this system is fair, if it's not just truly an invitational tournament, if there's any kind of merit to it. If UCLA is undefeated at the end of the season, if they're sitting there at 13 and 0, they should be in. They should get one of the four spots and get a chance to prove that they belong. But my hunch is. My hunch is that right now I'm leaning Oregon uh, on Saturday's game because they have the home field. I think the home field in the Pac-12, I said it last week, it's a huge advantage. Home favorites winning more than 70%, 70% of the time now and covering the spread 75% of the time. Mm. So I, I think Oregon's going to win this game, but I'm not counting UCLA out because I actually think UCLA is better than Utah. Obviously, they beat them. I think they're better than USC. And I think after this weekend, we might be talking about Oregon, Oregon State, UCLA, maybe USC, maybe Utah. There might be five teams that we that we believe can get there. Because I think that second team that gets to Vegas is going to have two losses. And I think everybody, you know, the the other team either is either going to be undefeated or have one loss. Mm-hmm. But I think this is going to be wild. I think this Pac-12 finish is going. The next five six weeks are going to be wild. It really is, and UCLA, if they were to beat Oregon, I don't know how you keep them out of the top four or the top five. I mean, you look at Clemson right now, they're right of the, right of the cusp of it. UCLA has a better not, you know, better schedule with wins than Clemson does. If they were to beat Washington and win at Oregon and beat Utah, I think that's a better uh, resume than Clemson. So, like, this is huge for UCLA. Like, they will get a lot of respect if they can win at Oregon and they're going to be real, uh, you know, a real contender, real serious contender for that college football playoff spot if they can get this win. There you go. There you have it. I want your phone calls. We're also going to play Punch It Audio, 503-417-7575. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Do your kids play a bunch of sports, have a bunch of activities, Stephen? How involved are they? How busy are your kids? Yeah, definitely very busy. Uh, my oldest, he's eight. He plays. Uh, he's in soccer right now, so soccer and basketball, and he just did golf, and uh, he's very interested in baseball. 
Uh, the little one, he uh, he's three. He's he's just starting to get into some things, but uh, yeah, very very active. I I wonder. I I probably need to like get, consult with like a child therapist, child psychologist who's maybe listening to the show. I kind of wonder about how busy kids are these days. I don't remember being this busy. I don't remember like you know our our six year old is boxing and playing soccer. The eight-year-old is playing volleyball, but it seems as though they are stressed out maybe a little bit. They don't say it in those terms, but I kind of look at them and I go, I remember having downtime after school. Like I came home in elementary school and maybe I had a little league practice two days a week and a game on Saturday or a game on Thursday, a game on Saturday, maybe that kind of pace to it. But I had like two or three nights every school week that I didn't have anything to do. And I would come home at 3 o'clock, and I would, maybe I would do homework, but more likely I went out in the backyard and I shot baskets or I threw the football around or I hit a ball on a batting tee and pretended that I was playing games in the backyard or whatnot. Um, but I had a chance to kind of exhale a little bit. And I kind of wonder about this generation of kids right now if, if they get that opportunity. Yeah, that's an interesting point uh, because, you, you know, at the same time, you want to have your kids be busy and try different things, right? Like that's I, I think that's awesome that your daughters are into, you know, sports that necessarily aren't, you know, as popular as other ones, like boxing. Like, I think that's awesome. Or volleyball at such a young age. I think it's so cool to get them interested in those because maybe that's their passion. Maybe that's what they're really good at. So, you know, it is that fine line, John. Like, you gotta, you can't, you can't have them do nothing, but at the same time, you gotta give them some downtime because it is important. They, they do get tired, even if they don't say they don't. Yeah, I think you gotta give them a break. But I also think, well, like we talked about this last week because our eight-year-old did not want to play volleyball. And she got signed up, and now she's playing. But I watched her. You know, I was uh, – so I I, uh, I came back uh, – what was it? Sunday morning. I flew back from Salt Lake City. Arrived at like 8 a.m., 9 a.m. at Portland Airport. And the 8-year-old played in a volleyball match at like 2 o'clock, 2 p.m. I was there. Parents are like the line judges. I volunteered to be the line judge. I'm out on the court. But I was, I was watching to see if the balls were in or out. But I also was kind of watching my kid. And I, I said to myself – I'm only evaluating whether she's having a good time today. That's all I'm looking at. Is she having a good time? She had a blast. She's playing. She's smiling. She's laughing. She's with her friends. They're warming up. She's got good energy about her. And, you know, she belly aches while we're going over to the match. But I think by the time she gets there, she's locked into it. And so I go, okay, you know, we're not, she's not here against her will, so to speak. But I think parents, we got to evaluate those things. And because I am still looking for an example of a professional athlete who says, I hated this sport when I was a kid and my parents made me do it. And I'm here today and I am hitting 330 in the big leagues. No, it doesn't exist. Like no. you, ha- you have to have a love for the game. Yeah. And that's the thing is, you know, yeah, I, at least my kids, my kids are very honest with me. They'll be very blunt. Even if I don't want them to, they'll be like, Hey dad, you know, you're looking pretty big today. I was like, Hey, thanks. But uh, you know, they'll tell me if they don't like a sport or something. So I, I do appreciate that from them is that, you know, it, I'm not going to force them to do anything they don't want to do, but I'm with you. Like, I watch my son go out and play soccer. Like, he's like, oh, I don't want to go to practice today. But then he goes out with his friends. He's having such a good time. So yeah. at the same time, like, you kind of got to push him, but you don't want to push him too hard. It, it is a definite fine line that you got to not cross as a parent. I'm just wondering about how busy these kids kids are these days. Um, okay, uh, I'm going to take a break here. We'll come back and play Punch It Audio. Uh, get this. Uh, the most disappointing player in the NFL uh, who is it? We'll talk about that. Plus, Dan Lanning speaking about Dorian Thompson-Robinson 
and Damian Lillard on why he thinks he can win in Portland. All of that ahead, and Draymond Green speaking out on the Jordan Poole punch. What did he say? You'll find out. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up at the 5 o'clock hour, Bruce Barnum, Portland State football coach. We'll talk uh, a lot in the happy hour about college football, and we got an NBA season that is starting. You excited about the NBA season, Stephen? Yeah, uh, of course. You know, I'm, uh, you know, I follow the Blazers. I have a Believe in Blazers podcast I do, so uh, yeah, I'm getting ready for it, and uh it should be an interesting season, you know, outside of Portland. I think there's actually quite a few teams that can say, you know, coming into the season, we're realistically looking to win a championship. We're usually in the NBA, it's a you know, handful of teams. I think there's more than a handful of teams this year uh, that can have really high expectations. Unfortunately, Portland's not one of them. Yeah. What is winning? What is making it for the Blazers this season? Uh, getting into the actual playoffs, the one through eight, not just the play-in. I think if they can get to the playoffs, that is a very, very successful season. All right. Let's play some punch it audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, the defending champion Golden State Warriors will tip off their season tonight against the Lakers. Warriors had the third-best record in the Western Conference in the regular season last year. They got questions this season about chemistry. Draymond Green, he spoke about Jordan Poole and the punch. Woke up to the video. Um, Once I woke up to the video... All right, I'm uh, already bored with that. Look, I think if you're Draymond Green, you need to come out this season and prove that you can be a better teammate. If you are Draymond Green who is throwing punches in practice, you're obviously not in tune with what the Warriors' culture wants to be. This is a franchise that fined him but didn't suspend him. We're going to find out pretty quickly whether or not that was the right move by the Warriors. Well, well, keep keep an eye on that. Have you seen this, John, that Draymond is going to debut in an all-access series uh, starting tonight, which is going to follow the preseason journey and includes his reaction to the Jordan Poole incident. Yeah. Like, like, it just seems like it's all about, like, content. Like, he's a content creator just trying to make it out there, get his content out there by punching people. Like, it's just, it, yeah. it's weird. Yeah, it makes me wonder, like, was that premeditated? Like, was the punch there to, to uh, you know, to make this more interesting? The problem with that clip is that it's probably great visually, but this is a radio show. So I'm hearing what I can't see, which it put me to sleep almost immediately. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton, three-run jack in the first inning. Bob Costas on the call. Yankees on the move. Punch it. A drive to right center field. Back near the wall and gone. 
So much power in that direction for Giancarlo Stanton. He had 31 during the season. This is his second of this series. And the Yankees jump on Savali in the first and take a 3 nothing lead. Yankees go on to win 5-1. They win the American League Division Series and they advance to the American League Championship Series. What did you make of the Casas call there? That was a big topic. <laughs> it was it was wordy. He did he did use a lot of words in there. He was wordy all throughout this series. <laughs> I I think he's waxing nostalgic. He's talking, you know, he's talking in profound terms. And his sidekick Ron Darling is going, you know, just bring straight heat here, Bob. Come on, we need it. I, look, I I think he probably somebody needs to talk to him because I think the some of the criticism is valid. Like we're not here to hear about the pageantry, and we're not here to see like it's almost like the run up to the Masters. You can do that in golf. I need a little less of that with my baseball. Chauncey Billups in the Blazers says he's happy with his team. What's he going to say? Here's Chauncey. Punch it. Yeah, I'm happy with our team, man. I'm happy with our team. I'm happy with our roster. Um, I love I love the characters that we have, you know. Um, I think our mindset is we're, we're in a good place right now. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited and happy about it. Blazers currently tied for the league in the Western Conference. Chauncey Phillips happy with his team. I love that how... Uh, you know, at this point of the season, Chauncey's feeling pretty good, pretty good about the Blazers as they sit at zero and zero. Um, you know, I just don't like. You know what I don't like when you go to like NBA.com. I went there today because I wanted to see like you know who was playing who, who was in this week, like what was the first big game I'd want to watch, and and you know I looked at the standings, and the Blazers are sitting in the 12 spot in the standings because they put them in alphabetical order when everyone's zero and zero. I don't like that. Like, this is the one chance NBA.com has to put, you know, Portland and Minnesota and Memphis one, two, three. The Kings. Yeah, why not? Give us a little hope, NBA.com. Damian Lillard selling hope. He says he thinks he can win a title in Portland punch it uh, I just you know I, I believe in myself for one um, but also I believe in Chauncey you know he's a he was a champion as a player and he's just a championship type of person you know just what he brings to the team being around him every day I feel like um, you know that that optimism that belief that strength that he has you know I feel like I represent the same thing and um, that's the culture and the kind of team that we're trying to build so that that gives me that belief um, and I just feel like it, it doesn't take, uh, you know, having all of the best players. You know, the team just has to be connected. You got to be on the same page. You got to really believe and you got to be fearless. And I think what we've seen over the last couple of years is, you know, teams that you just don't expect to be there are ending up there. And um, even Golden State, you know, as great as they have been, you know, in the last six or seven years, they had a couple, you know, rough years, and then going into last season, nobody was picking them to end up coming up on top. Mm. Um, and they did, and nobody expected Boston to, to be in the finals. You know, Boston wasn't just having a, a special season, you know, halfway through. They, it just clicked. You know, they came together. You just never know when it's going to happen. I just feel like it's possible, and, uh, you know, that's what I'm that's what I'm working towards. All right, let's, let's dissect this. Look, I'm glad that he thinks he can win a title in Portland. That's great. I'm glad that he believes in himself. Awesome. But it wasn't like the Warriors and the Celtics were 
thirty to one last season. I think the Warriors were somewhere around six, six and a half to one, seven to one, uh, and the Celtics were were in there as well. Like when you look at the NBA futures right now, it's Boston, it's Golden State, it's Milwaukee, it's the Clippers, it's the Nets, maybe it's the Suns. The Blazers are currently sitting, you know, anywhere between uh, eighty to one. 150 to 1 to win it all. I mean, you know, that's a different equation. It's not like anything is possible here. I'd love to see it. I'd love to be wrong. I'd love for the Blazers to go all the way. But this roster as constructed is hamstrung. This coach, we don't know. Yeah, go ahead. You look at Boston, like Boston last year, they were 500. Uh, right around the All-Star break, they make a move for Derek White, and then they start to explode. But it wasn't as if they were the 10th team in the East, which is what the Blazers are projected. You look yeah. at Vegas, they're number 10 in the Western Conference, and that's with an unproven head coach and a superstar on the wrong side of 30 coming off of an injury that we still don't know if he's going to be 100% healthy. So you know, I believe Dame will be back, but it remains to be seen like this roster isn't very good, and they are 10th in the West for a reason. There's about seven teams that have a realistic shot. I mean, is there more than that? Like, when I go down the list, I go, hey, it's, you know, Golden State, Milwaukee, Boston, Clippers wouldn't surprise me. The Nets wouldn't even surprise me. Phoenix wouldn't shock you. Sixers, they put it all together, wouldn't shock you. Maybe Denver, okay? I I think Denver for sure. I think they are in there. Okay, Denver, Miami, eh, Lakers, Start to have reasonable doubt now. Yeah. Okay. After that, no, no, it's not happening. So, you know, it's, I appreciate his enthusiasm, but the realist in me is going, there's a lot of work to be done here. And if the Blazers organization is living in this fantasy land where they think like anything's possible, anyone can win, that's not really helping the overall mission. So I feel like uh, you got to get real with yourself. This is like, you know, this is, you know, this is like all of us waking up on January 1st going, hey, we need to get into the gym, you know? Hey, we're not sitting around going, well, it could happen. You know, it's not just going to happen by itself. I'm not going to be a supermodel just by myself. <laughs> you, you know, you could do some things. You know, there's some things you could do. I've been in a commercial, but I'm not a supermodel. <laughs> but, you, you know, but there's some, there's some things you can control and things you can't. And the Blazers, they can control their roster. They can control how much they spend. They can control the trades they make and whether or not they cling to a era of basketball that isn't going to work out and try to convince themselves that it will work out. All right, coming up, uh, Stephen A. Smith weighs in on Russell Wilson, calls him the most disappointing player in the NFL this season. He certainly is making it difficult to argue with that. I'll play that clip on the other side of the break. Plus, Dan Lanning talking about Dorian Thompson-Robinson. Later this week, uh, Thursday, Dan Lanning, Oregon football coach, on in the 4 o'clock hour. Tomorrow, Wednesday, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State coach, on in the 5 o'clock hour. You'll hear them both because this is not home of the Ducks, not home of the Beavers. It's home of the truth. We get everybody on this show. We don't play favorites on this show is what I'm saying. And I hope you know that you're getting it uh, dealt to you real on the level on this show. You're not going to get that... You know, that flagship, we gonna, we gonna, oh, they're going all the way. I'll, I'll tell you what I think. If, if I think Oregon's going to lose, I'll tell you. If I think Oregon State's going to lose, I'll tell you. I, but I think they're both going to win this weekend. B-F-F-T. 
from the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights. Here's John Canzano with a bald faced truth. The most disappointing player in the NFL. Is it Russell Wilson? What did Dan Landing say about Dorian Thompson Robinson? NBA season starting. Yankees headed to the ALCS. Boo. Nick Saban weighing in on why he thinks his players lost on Saturday. All of that ahead of us here in this hour. It's the happy hour. We'll start with the five at five. The five at five. Well, it'll be Oregon against UCLA at Autzen Stadium on Saturday. ESPN's College Game Day on the scene. 12.30 kickoff at Autzen Stadium. Daylight, Chip Kelly in the stadium. Hell, it feels like the Chip Kelly era. Big stakes with ESPN on, on the scene. But Dan Lanning spent some time talking about Dorian Thompson-Robinson, the quarterback at UCLA. What does he see there? You know, obviously, it's he's really familiar with their system. He's completing the ball at a really high rate right now. He's operating their offense. Obviously, he's a weapon with his legs. Um, he understands what they're trying to accomplish. I think it's a lot of the same things you see right now with, with our quarterback, right? Understanding what is supposed to be accomplished on the field and executing it at a high level. And he's certainly doing that. He's a dynamic player. And anytime he touches the ball, it can turn into an explosive play. So that's showing up for them. Oregon, a favorite at home in this game. Home favorites winning about 71% of the time this season in the Pac-12 Conference. Will be a big football game, big test for Dan Lanning, big test for the defense at Oregon, big test for the offense. Fans will show up. I cannot wait for this game. I think it's going to be a fantastic football game. And then you got Oregon State later in the day. Oregon State playing Colorado at Reeser Stadium. Beavers sitting on five wins have an opportunity with Colorado and Washington and Cal and Arizona State to possibly arrive at the Civil War football game sitting on a 9-2 and record. Could be a whole bunch of fun. Nick Saban's team lost over the weekend. Bama, they lost to Tennessee. Nick Saban talked about how tight his team was before the game. You know, you want to have great energy and you want to be loose. Um, I thought we were tight, especially starting the game. Um, I mean, coming out of the locker room, our players always chant. They weren't chanting. I said, why don't you guys chanting? What's up with that? And um, so it's not that they don't want to do it. It's not that they're not trying. Uh, I just think we, we've got to place our, get our focus in the right place and our psychological disposition in the right place. Nick Saban was chanting on the sideline. I don't know if you saw the video. He was upset. Alabama fell to 6-1 and one with loss at Tennessee. Fell to number six in the polls. This week, they will be home against Mississippi State and Mike Leach. Look out. Mississippi State's not bad. They're 5-2 and two this season. Mike Leach, pretty good. That's number two in our 5 at 5. Number three in the 5 at 5. Russell Wilson could have a serious hamstring injury. Meanwhile, Stephen A. Smith says he's the most disappointing player in the NFL. Let me be very, very clear. I'm, I've always been a fan of Russell uh, Wilson. Um, not this year. He's looked bad. They've got the worst offense in the National Football League in terms of points scored. He's only completing 58% of his passes. He looks like a shell of himself. I can't look at 
a Sutton, a Jerry, Judy, and all of a sudden believe that these brothers can't get it done. For years, we've been lamenting they haven't had a quarterback. Well, guess what? Thus far this season, they still don't have a quarterback in Denver. Because that ain't the Russell Wilson we've come to know and love, who's a Super Bowl champion and went to back-to-back Super Bowls and what all, all of that stuff. We're not seeing that from him. You got $165 million guaranteed. And the reality is, is that you're literally watching him in press conferences. And you're almost to the point where you, you, you literally want, you literally in a different way. It's not to shut up and dribble. You know what I'm saying? Like folks tried to tell professional athletes. But you literally want to tell him to shut up and play. Russell Wilson's got some work to do. Uh, we'll talk about it later in the week. I got Jeff Schwartz, former NFL offensive lineman, who did a great sort of analysis of Russell Wilson's performance. It's one of the most puzzling things. Like, you know, I've asked people, what's wrong with Russell Wilson? Is it a physical ailment? Is it that hamstring that people are talking about today? You know, Tom Pelissero uh, talking about that hamstring injury. Is it, you know, he had a close friend who passed away in the summer. Is it the money that he got going to Denver? Is it everything? Is it kind of an amalgam of things that are going on? Well, Russell Wilson made clear after the game last night that that hamstring impacted him, particularly in the fourth quarter. He's undergoing an MRI today. My understanding going into that test is there is concern here that this is a fairly significant hamstring strain for Russell Wilson. Now, this is also a guy who has played with a lot in his career. There was one year in Seattle where he was playing with an MCL sprain in one leg and a high ankle sprain in the other. He's already playing this season with a lat strain, flew out last week to go get an injection in it. He's been trying to push through here. So again, undergoing the MRI, that will tell a more complete story here. But you have to wonder, for a player who already is struggling to look like the Russell Wilson that we are accustomed to seeing, a lat strain plus a hamstring strain and a short week. There it is, a short week and a troubling injury for Russell Wilson. Number four in our five at five. For the first time, an NFL owner is publicly calling out Daniel Schneider. Colts owner Jim Irsay held an explosive interview at the meetings today and called Daniel Schneider's missteps as an owner gravely concerning. He noted that there is enough merit to remove uh, Daniel Snyder as owner of the Commanders. He said it in the hotel lobby in downtown New York. The owners are meeting. A, the league would require 24 of the 32 owners to, re, to approve his removal. Seth Greenberg talked about what the owners could do. Could they get super creative in trying to get him removed? Here's Greenberg talking about the possibilities. Well, there's league meetings in New York, in downtown New York, next Tuesday, and we'll see. One of the most interesting things is that it it takes three-quarters of owners to vote out an owner. The owners don't think that, especially the owners who are mad at at Dan, even over this, I don't know if they think they can get to 24, but they've considered creative ways, maybe, of trying to force the team into the hands permanently of his wife, Tanya. And one of them is kind of an interesting technical thing, but they would jam him on a debt limit waiver. When owners build stadiums, they typically take out a lot of debt. The league has strict rules over how much debt they can carry. Now, most people think that Dan Snyder cannot write a check for a new stadium in the D.C. area and would need those debt limit waivers, including the loans that the league often offers. And owners have talked about not permitting him those waivers as a way as a backdoor way to try to transfer permanent ownership to Tanya. Look, I joked last week this was like getting Al Capone on tax evasion, but this is the game that wealthy people play. Keep an eye on it as the 
owners in the NFL appear unhappy with Daniel Snyder. Meanwhile, Mike Florio of uh, Pro Football uh, Focus talked about the possibility that Daniel Snyder could fight back. How would he fight back? Well, he'd fight back with dirt. Here's Mike Florio talking about the dirt that Daniel Snyder presumably has on some of the other owners. Dating back to July 1 of 2021 when they announced the punishment for the franchise, they were protecting him not because they like him. They're protecting him because they're protecting each other. And one of the things they have to worry about is Daniel Snyder going scorched earth on people. And there are people who believe that he's the one who leaked the Gruden emails a year ago that had Gruden ultimately step down as coach of the Las Vegas Raiders. And I believe there's a concern that if they try to force Snyder out, not only will he use every legal means necessary to fight back, he will leak to media anything he thinks he may know about others he can take down with him. So it's mutually assured destruction. There's Mike Florio, Pro Football Talk, talking about Dan Schneider. Keep an eye on that. Meanwhile, Oregon State, I mentioned them earlier, they will be at home on Saturday. They'll be playing against Colorado. Colorado coming off a big win over Cal, their first win of the season. Vegas had Colorado installed as a 0.5 total wins this season. I hope you took the over because they got to one. Can they get to two? That becomes the big question. They're going to have a hard time doing it at Research Stadium, though, where the Beavers are pretty damn good. The Beavers again with 21 personnel with Jack Belling, Jake Overman. Overman the wing right. A play-action boot. Rolling left. Gold Branson backpedaling off-balance throw to the end zone. A leaping catch attempt by Anthony Gould. Gould claims he's caught it, and now there's some pushing and shoving after the play. No signal yet that I can tell, Jimmy. The fans are cheering as though a touchdown's been called, and I've got to wait. It is a touchdown, and the point after by Sappington, 8.01 to go in the third. The Beavers 17, the Cougars 3. Look, not the most dramatic call, but Oregon State tends to get it done that way. I think it's kind of their identity. They've shed the little engine that could identity, and Jonathan Smith making no mistakes, asking no quarters, giving no quarters. Oregon State at home against Colorado. I said it earlier in the show. i got to see it to believe it kind of where the Beavers have left me in the last couple years, but Oregon State is a 24-point home favorite in this game. 23 and a half in some places. I expect Oregon State to win this game. They should win this game. They're very good at home. Beavers, Buffaloes, Saturday. That's your nightcap in the Pac-12 action. Coming up, we'll talk to Bruce Barnum, Portland State's football coach. Barnum will be joining us uh, to talk about their season when I ask him what's new on the uh, stadium front, plus uh, challenges in the NIL world. That, plus more in the happy hour. I want you to leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Portland State coming off a 42-7 loss to Weber State over the weekend. Play at Idaho this week. Are you superstitious? I'm superstitious. Uh, Bruce Barnum. Are you superstitious, Bruce Barnum? Do you do you believe in that stuff? Um, I don't know if I believe in it, but I do it. Yeah. You know? I know, I know what you mean. 
I, I don't know if it's, you know, there, there's some quirks I might do at certain times uh, to get ready for something, but I don't believe in it, but I do it. You know, it's interesting because, you know, I played baseball in college. I you know, People, you know, say don't step on the foul line. I I, I went okay, and I went, well, I might as well step over it because there's no there's no good that comes from stepping on it. Like, what if it is bad luck? Uh, what are your quirks? Give me one of your quirks that you kind of repeat. Hmm. Now I'm going to let you know there's probably too many of them. Um, <laughs> like, you know. Uh, driving. Okay. okay. Driving. I think it's bad luck because a lot of people are driving right now. Now they're going to start doing this possibly. No, they're not as odd as myself. When I'm driving, John, I, I, before I can breathe, take a breath, I don't do this all the time, but I have to blink my eyes at four semi-trucks, four times each. So one goes by, one, two, three, four. Another one yeah. goes by, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, then, then I can breathe normal. What, when did that start? No, I don't go any deeper than that, John. It, 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 it's a, you know... Once you, once you do that, you have to keep doing it. Well, yeah, but you don't do it the whole drive, you know. <laughs> it's, it's just certain times in the drive that you have to do it. Because I drive, you know, back and forth to work, I-5 in the morning, you know, depending on what time we come in, uh, 4.15 to 5.30, there's, there's enough moving that you get enough trucks going by, but or you get jammed up as if you're sitting, you know, in traffic, and it's that time to do that. And, uh, that's holding your breath like the Navy SEALs. Oh, all right, I like that. Um, look, hey, you brought your dad in studio once, and your dad has uh, an incredible connection to history. Tell our listeners your dad's connection as a pallbearer and, you know, uh, what happened and all that stuff. Are you sure? Yeah, we got time for this. Let's do it. All right. Um, uh, Coast Guard, uh, 27 years. He, he, had, he, didn't, he couldn't get into OTC, officer training, cadet school, or he's colorblind. Um, so they wouldn't let him in. Anyway, he ended up at CWO4, Chief Warrant Officer 4. But in his early days, uh, he was. We were stationed in D.C. twice. This was free Bruce. Um, but long story short, if you say we only have, you know, a minute, um, he was a pallbearer for JFK. Yeah. He was a pallbearer for MacArthur and mm -hmm. LBJ. Now, how he fell into it was a typical, you know four blinks at four semi-truck type of operation. Um, they're stationed in D.C. Uh, when uh, President Kennedy was shot. There's people actually training from each service at Arlington underneath the tomb of the unknown soldier. There, uh, It's probably four football fields underneath there of where they do all sorts of items. I don't know if I'm supposed to talk yeah, about that. This could be classified, security. but go on. Well, yeah, that could be. But that's where they train. One of the things they do in there is train the pallbearers for if something happens. Anyway, we lived um, in D.C. at the time, or that my parents did with my brother. And there, he wasn't on the initial squad or the initial you know, group for President Kennedy. 
but they made a mistake in D.C. They have a system where you let out certain people hmm. um, at a time uh, because of the beltway and traffic. Okay, these workers leave. You know, if you work in this area, you go home right now, please. They made a mistake, and they, everybody left at the same time. Traffic jam. The And now you've got Air Force One coming in soon with the president and family uh, from Dallas. All of them couldn't make it. There was one missing. They called my dad, who was an alternate um, from the Coast Guard, and we lived close enough that he could get over there. Uh, barring the traffic. Anyway, so uh, that's how he ended up being on it. There's some interesting stories. He's been interviewed a lot. Um, you know, conspiracy theories, etc. The only odd thing, the thing I still talk to him about at times, they were waiting for Air Force One, okay, at Andrews Air Force Base. When the plane landed, they went out to get the the body out of the plane. JFK's body. JFK's body. Yeah. They went out. They're waiting to open the cargo hold underneath. And by gunpoint, that group of pallbearers were taken into a closet, essentially, right off the tarmac and locked in there, my dad said, for approximately 46 minutes, screaming, hollering. They heard everything outside. Um, they were finally released. Their commandant, commander told them, you're with that body until he's buried. Do not ever leave it. So that's what they did. I mean, they were, they, they were, he was there for the autopsy. Uh, he was there for everything, you know. What happened in the, so for 46 minutes, they were sequestered in a room away from the body, or they were by, still with By him? gunpoint, yes. They were taken from the plane guns on their backs, shoved into a, a closet, essentially, my dad said, a small room right off the tarmac um, of right where Air Force One landed. Did he ever say who was who was holding the guns? Was it another branch of the military? They didn't know. They didn't know. That's part, oh, of, the, the, that's part of the deal. He didn't know if, who it was. And I, it's I'm the not CIA. Make it. it's well, the that's CIA. the first thing. They, he said... When I, I remember when I, I did a report on him when I was, oh, I told you this before, in high school or something, or elementary school, and, I mean, my teacher, I got sent to the office again. You know, she thought I was lying. <laughs> that my dad was a pallbearer, and I'm saying all these things, and she's like, this little punk, you know. Uh, yeah. And there I was, Mr. Wilson's office, sitting there waiting for the parents again, you know, <laughs> thinking my right arm's going to get worn out writing sentences. Right, a hundred times that your dad was not a Paul Barrett and you were a liar. <laughs> the, so give us an idea. Like, did dad ever say, you know, we've had him on the show when he was with you that, that one summer he was came in the studio. Uh, but did dad ever say what he thought happened in those 46 minutes? Were, there, were they arguing over who was going to be in control of the body out there, or what were they doing? I don't know. We've kicked it around some, you know, just... Um, there's all there's all kinds of theories, you know. John, did, were, were they trying to hide how many times he was shot, where he was shot, were they switching the body? Was it, you know, I don't know. Um, and I'm not because this is pre-autopsy, right? Like the autopsy well, had yes, not been performed yet. Had not been performed yet. Oh boy. So 
Like, but why it, would they? Like, why would they do that? Like, you know, you start right. to wonder those things. That's the one thing he said he couldn't. You know, he tells stories and they take, then he takes you through the entire thing on. Oh, how they were practicing the, you know, the day before, you know, the, um, the entire uh, procession. Uh, they were walking up the stairs with the uh, casket with no, with rocks in it, the equal weight of the president, hmm. and they almost dropped it. So they had to add two more, you know, pallbearers, uh, just to get the thing up the stairs, just because it was so heavy. But you know, there's some. There's some stories, you know, even about the autopsy, um, you know, seeing, um, who was it? Who, who was the, uh, no, the son that saluted, um, in the okay. famous picture. Kennedy's son, it's, uh, was that, um. Robert? I, I think John? it was John. It was, there was John. It was, it was John. John. Yeah. Yeah. He remembers John, um, in the, in the room, he asked my dad because my dad was closest uh to jackie o and the family during the autopsy and he looked up and he asked his mom why my dad was crying you know because he was young and he probably yeah. catching up and there's some stories that make it you know and i wasn't there obviously being that person you know everybody they talked about how everybody watched that on television you know yeah. Yeah. Um, and my dad still, uh, to this day, this this caught me by surprise. Um, they're back. They built a, a place, a retirement place, where they grew up. And he probably gets, um, I would say, five, seriously, about five a week, two to five a week, people wanting his autograph on some piece of memorabilia of JFK, uh, you know, from that time, just because they see, you know, he's one of the still surviving pallbearers, and he still signs it, and, you know, writes him a note, and sends it back, but there's some pretty cool pictures, uh, the government, every picture that was taken that day, uh, John, by the government, um, the pallbearers got a copy of, because they were part of it, he's got... Uh, you know the old, you know, notebooks with the big ring binders in them. Yeah, I think he's got about six or seven of those jammed. They're almost, you know, six inches, you know, thick of side by side of black and white photos of that day. There's some pretty cool shots in there. Let me um, ask you. We're talking to Bruce Barnum, the Portland State football coach. Uh, uh, you're sitting around with dad over the years. You know, I, I remember when uh, the JFK movie came out and I went, I bought the book on the trail of the assassins, the garrison book. He was the prosecutor who brought charges. Did, did, did dad, does dad believe that Oswald was the killer? Does dad have a thought on that? He, no, ne never. He doesn't. Uh, the conversation w was brought up by, Kevin or myself, it was never brought up by dad. He didn't, if, if you just hung out with my dad and you were his friend for a lifetime, you wouldn't know he was a pallbearer. Um, you would have to hear it somewhere else and ask him, yeah. you know, about it. He, he won't talk, he doesn't talk about it unless asked. He's, he's been that way since, you know, I've known him. It pushed me to 
one of my majors undergrad was history just you know yeah. fascinating it was a unique situation when you're in college did, did you get the same disbelief when you said oh my dad was a pallbearer at jfk's funeral my dad was I, there you know? i never talked about it john it was you know you needed me in that class i would have been like ask bruce his dad was there <laughs> it's crazy yeah. it's wild uh, I love it. Thanks for sharing that. Um, of course. I've got to get your dad on the show. we got to talk about this stuff again. Um, let's talk football a little bit. Weber State got you guys. Uh, yeah, you got I, You got Idaho this week. Feels like you're going to find out where you are in the conference pretty quickly because Idaho, Montana, you, you've seen Weber State, Montana. you got you got Northern Arizona. But uh, how are you feeling this week as you go to Idaho? Um, they just – beat Montana. They haven't done that since 1999 at home. And I know that's a pretty cool feeling. We've done it. We did a couple, few years ago. And, um, I'm, you know, combine that with they're playing with a lot of confidence and emotion right now. That that adds to the game. Uh, we need to match that, you know. Um, I've been, uh, we're getting some guys back right now. So uh, I like Still, our practice today was focused. My guys know the what they've faced. You know what I mean? They know yeah. they've faced two top ten teams in the country. Um, or, no, Idaho's 17. They're not top ten. Or they have, I'm sorry. Weber and Montana were top five. Teams. Now they've another one, but, you know, uh, it's uh, welcome to life. Short memory. Click on to this one. Um, we're putting a game plan together. We're adjusting some things. It's still, I feel, as a, a coach with my quarterback, you know, uh, trying to get him what is his best game, you know, uh, and learning what he can do and he can't do, uh, learning who he is a little more because he's a guy running it. Um, and I like what, I like the package we have now. I think I gave him too much last week, you know. He had a great game against Northern Arizona, then Lincoln, and I think I gave him too much. I gave him three-year guy stuff. Uh, when you was, say that, when you what do you mean? Is just too many plays, too much complication, too much on him to make calls at the line of scrimmage? What's too much? Uh, movement, um, motions, shifts, etc. Um, and then what it's going to, how that is going to put us in the best spot um, to free our wide receivers up. Um, we're, we're, we've been banged up at back, so we're We've been asked to throw the football a little bit more. Um, my just my backfield's taking a hit. That'll be fixed this week. I'm getting some guys back, but um, maybe asking him to do a little too much. Just as far as that. Now, when we go here, you know, two two by two or empty to this shift, and then this movement is going to free up this side to cover one, but to cover three max, you're going to do this. I, I think I overloaded him, you know. So. Yeah, it's interesting because, I, you know, I hear that when you see coaches who, you know, when you watch a game and you see a bunch of motion, a bunch of shifts, I mean, it's extra stuff that the quarterback has to think about because you obviously don't want the ball snapped. You gotta, that guy's got to know where everybody right. needs to be, right, when right. the ball is snapped. So you're just giving him some extra things to think about. And then he has to execute, you know, whatever read he has if, if you're throwing the football and also in the run game. You know, I knew I overloaded him a little bit when we had, we run read zone, right? There, there, a lot of teams do it now. Um, 
Urban made a living off it, you know, starting, uh, got famous for it at Utah and then moved on to bigger jobs. And that's the simplest read in America. And when he was, when he was not a hundred percent on that one, I knew, you know, I gave this kid too much, you know, then you're in a game, you know, and you're getting swamped and you're like, come on. Now what do you do? You know, do you dummy him down in the middle of a player? Not dummy. Do you make it simpler in the middle of a game? Do you, you know? So we cut it back. I tried to adjust him at halftime, and then we just we, we were sloppy after that. You know. And so. I know, I know, everybody wants to have this great playbook and be super creative and whatnot. But I, you know, over the years I've talked to coaches who say, you know, that ideally, your guys master plays. And you're kind of at the point of the season where, you know, you should start to have some things down. Um, how big do you want that playbook to be? Um, it depends on your people. But uh, I've always been the simple guy. John. We're going to run this play, um, say 34-35, it's read zone. We're going to do it, but we're going to do it out of – you're going to have so many looks at that and so many different edges. And your defensive end – that's who you're kind of playing games with when you run that play because the play essentially it's an option play but it allows you to not block everybody in the box you can take one away and that's the guy that you read there you know all that read zone um but you can do all kinds of stuff with that from loop motion to rolling the secondary to doing it out the back gate you know, as you've done everything out the out the front gate, you can switch up motions. You can slip, slip. You can motion both. We did that once. We, you know, slip both guys, and you can make that one play look like, you know, thirty different things. That that's what we've always done here. Um, so, um, it, it's I think the simpler the better. Here, here's kind of what we do. Stop it. Let me ask you something because I, this doesn't have to do with you guys, but. I was watching USC, Oregon State, uh, the game again. I went back to kind of look at what USC was doing. And I noticed that, you know, USC played Utah this last weekend, and USC used a whole bunch of motion. In the Oregon I, State... I, I saw part of that game. Yeah. It, USC, Utah, DVR. Yeah. All right. So the Oregon State game, though, they did not. And part of it was maybe the crowd noise inside Reeser Stadium. I don't know. But it was super loud that night. I noticed that USC used almost no motion against Oregon State, and they struggled. They struggled to get guys open, and the secondary for Oregon State covered well. Is crowd noise a factor when you're using motion? You're on the road. Yes, it is, because you have to time up those motions, especially if you're crossing the football. If they're crossing the football with it, and they can't hear it, and a lot of guys now are going on clap, or if it's really loud, you know, they're going on the knee or the hand down. Um and crossing the ball motion, if it's loud, it deletes that um, because you're afraid. Obviously, the center's going to be a little delayed as you know he sees it, looks up, motion screaming. In. I mean, it's probably every coach's fear that that ball is going to hit the motion guy and you know be a turnover. Interesting. So yeah, I mean, it affects cross the ball motion. I don't think it affects motion out outside. All right, you got Idaho on Saturday. Then uh, you go to Eastern Washington. You're back home against Northern Colorado next. Uh, those are your next three. Uh, we wish you the best in those. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you. Thanks for having uh, Portland State on, John. Thanks for talking about all the conspiracy and superstition as well. It's fascinating. Thanks, Bruce Barnum. Of course. Bye. All right.
There he is. Steven, I was on the edge of my seat. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we got some information that maybe wasn't supposed to be out there, right? Like, <laughs> I, was, had, I was expecting, like, the FBI to call the studio or something. I actually got a call from the CIA while he was talking. No, I <laughs> it, it, you know, it, I expected the, the, the radio would go dead, you know? All of a sudden, I'd be like, hello? Um, no, his dad came with him one time in studio. We had him on, and he was in studio, and I looked over, and I started talking to his dad, and his dad said, oh, he was in the Coast Guard and all this and that, and then I uh, was googling his dad on the commercial break and i suddenly turned to bruce barnum and i said put your dad in front of the microphone and we talked about some of the jfk stuff but i feel like i now have to have him back on because now i know some more questions to ask i want to know 46 minutes that they were sequestered what what was going on what did they hear what was it an argument i suspect it was an argument between the cia and the coast guard and who, you know, maybe the secret service over who should had control of the president's body probably you know, they put him in there and they said, you know, the CIA wanted the body or the Secret Service wanted the body. and But it ended up with the Coast Guard having control of the body and being in on the autopsy and everything. But fascinating stuff. We have to get Bruce Barnum's dad on the show now. Yeah, and how cool is it to have all those pictures that the government took just in one, you know, <sighs> big giant binder? Like the history in that binder is insane. I I think it's like that movie JFK with Kevin Costner in it. Fascinating. The book... You know, on the trail of the assassins, the Jim Garrison book, he was the prosecutor in New Orleans who brought the conspiracy charges against uh, several people. Uh, all of that, uh, I think it remains like one of the great mysteries and some of the great theater in American history. Uh, leave it here. That's why you come to the show. You got the bald face truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. So I just got a, uh, during the commercial break, doorbell, ding-dong. I'm in the uh, studio, uh, home studio, uh, broadcasting this radio show uh, Monday through Friday, and uh, doorbell rang, ding-dong, and I thought, well, there's a commercial break. Like, I can grab that real quick. And, uh, and I was also expecting a FedEx delivery because uh, the University of Oregon and Oregon State will both send credentials and parking passes via uh, either FedEx or Postal Service or UPS or whatnot. So, but I knew FedEx was coming, and uh, in part because uh, if you are subscribed to me at johnconzano.com, you are receiving not just my columns uh, every day and what I'm writing, and you don't, you know, it gets delivered direct to your email inbox uh, every morning when I write, like Chip Kelly. I wrote this morning about Chip Kelly in Oregon. You got it in real time. You get it before anybody else gets it, and it's there waiting for you at your leisure. But um, you not only get that, but you're getting these photo galleries over the over the weekends. I don't know, Stephen, have you seen any of the photo galleries that have gone out on games? Are you a photo guy? Yeah, I love to I love to look at photos because I think it just it presents a different uh, just different vibe of what you get. Especially like if you're watching something on TV, you can see one thing, but you can see another thing in a picture. You can see another thing when you're live. There at the stadium. So, like, yeah, I, I love a good picture. Okay, so I did something really cool this season, and I've never done this before. And I've only done this because since I went rogue and I went on my own and I'm doing my own thing, I just thought, you know, part of it is I'm, I'm painting a picture with my words at games and I'm writing columns, but I wanted to have photos that you couldn't get anywhere else with my columns that you can't get anywhere else. This is the only place you can read me, johnconzano.com. So... 
I hired uh, Serena Morones, who's a fantastic photographer. She's a fantastic sports shooter. She's just really good, has a good eye, sees the game, has a, uh, a knack for human interest angles, and I write uh, in that way as well. And so I, I knew that I had to have her shooting when I am at games. And so I hired her before the season, and I said, I want you on any game that you can make, and here's the whole schedule, and here's where I'm going to be, and let me see where you are. And, you know, she, that's why she was at Oregon, Georgia, in Atlanta, shooting for johnconzano.com. And her photo gallery off that game was fantastic because it's not just the photos of the game. It's like Marcus Mariota on the sidelines and Phil Knight on the sidelines, and it's Dan Lanning interacting with his players and Dan Lanning shaking hands uh, at midfield with uh, Kirby Smart. And so she, she gets the stuff that's outside the game. So she shot that game, and then she shot the Eastern Washington game. She shot several games. She shot the USC-Oregon State game earlier this season. Uh, but, I, but it gave me an idea because the reaction from readers was robust. People were going, I love this. Like, I love the fact that you're telling a story off a game with your column, and then there's this whole photo essay element as well that goes with it. And, and, uh, and, I, and I respect the photographers. And I think photographers sometimes don't feel respected when they're working for other media outlets because the pictures are seen or viewed or treated as a secondary element. And so I said, no, 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 we're going to have these photo essays where I'm gonna, we're going to publish like 30 of your photos off the game. And people can just look at the photos if they want to. Or they can read my column and then look at the photos. So then I started doing something fun. I said, you know what? Why not just go around the Pac-12? Why not find photographers in other cities who want to shoot games? And so, uh, you know, Taylor Balcom, who shot the BYU-Oregon game for JohnConzano.com, is also shooting the UCLA-Oregon game. Um, Tim Healy, who is a great sports shooter, he shot, uh, last weekend, he shot Washington State, Oregon State at Research Stadium for JohnConzano.com. Rob Gray, meanwhile, same day, was in Salt Lake City shooting USC in Utah. Michael Christie, a week before that, was in Tucson shooting Oregon at Arizona. Uh, Ian Crimmins, uh, who's located in Pullman, uh, shot Oregon at Washington State for JohnConzano.com. So I, I looked at this, and I published this yesterday. And if you read my piece yesterday on the officiating, I wrote about Pac-12 officiating. Uh, it's a column that is titled, Pac-12 Officials Need to Say Less. But if you scroll down that column, towards the end of the column, you get uh, links to every single photo gallery this season. And I had not figured out that I already have shot 11 Pac-12 games. So you can get the galleries and you can see all these great photos. And a lot of the photos are of fans, the bands, cheerleaders, the players, the action, the coaches. It's everything at games. And it's a really cool installment. So, ding dong, doorbell rings. Uh, I know I have a FedEx coming. It's Oregon. It's bringing the photo credentials, and it's bringing the parking passes for Oregon's game against UCLA. And I have them in my hands right now. Uh, I've got these, uh, I've got the passes. Uh, I also have somebody shooting Oregon State's game, and, you know, they'll get their credential. But I always like to tell the delivery driver thanks if I see the delivery driver, and we have this kind of these stairs that lead to the house. And, you know, he had left the FedEx envelope on the doorstep, and he was down 
uh, near the sidewalk, and he was getting back into his truck, and I yelled, hey, thanks. And the guy whipped around, and he said, I loved the story on your piece yesterday about you losing your shirt. This is what I'm talking about. My people who are out listening to this show, if you're listening right now, you're my people. I know that you work jobs or you have kids or you uh, take care of somebody in your life. I know you do. I know that uh, you're educated. I know that you're smart. I know that you're uh, probably a sports fan because you're listening to a sports radio show. But one of the things I love is that like, I feel like there's some real synergy between what we're doing on the radio and what I'm doing at johnconzano.com. And I told that story yesterday about, I did it in print in that same piece where, you know, I'm in Salt Lake City, I'm covering this game. I had a blast covering the Utah-USC game. It was a fantastic football game. Wrote my column on deadline. I'm leaving the stadium. Pat Forty of Sports Illustrated is walking with me. Uh, and I got the sense from Pat that he, he had a long walk to a dark parking lot. I got the sense that Pat didn't want to walk alone. He never said that, but I just it's a feeling because he kind of lingered. And he said, are you walking out? And I said, yeah. And then we walked out together. We went down the elevator. We went outside Rice-Eccles Stadium. And, and then we got to, like, the sidewalk. And Pat said, where did you park? And I said, I'm getting an Uber. I'm, like, a block away. And he said, oh, I'm in this parking lot. i got to walk to this parking lot. And I said, hey, safe travels. Catch you later. Well, I went. It, it, the wind was howling. I mentioned this yesterday on the show. The wind was just howling. It was, like, 35-mile-an-hour winds. And it was cold. And I had a sweatshirt in my bag. But I had on this button-up collared shirt. It wasn't like I could just put the sweatshirt over it, but I had a t-shirt in my bag. So I decided to change outside in the howling wind. And I stopped at kind of this bus kiosk that had semi-shelter, but not all the way. And I told the story yesterday, but I'm going to tell it again. But I unbuttoned the shirt and I took it off and I was just about to change into the t-shirt when a gust of wind ripped that shirt out of my hand and it sent it flying down the street. And if it weren't a shirt that I had just bought... I probably don't go running after it. If it's like a cheap shirt, I'd probably just go, easy come, easy go, and I just put on my T-shirt and forget about it. But I was like, damn it, I just bought this button-up shirt. I'm not getting – so I went running after it, and I ran down the street, and it was one of those things where you're trying to grab it, and it's tumbling along, and you, I slammed my foot on it. It's got a giant footprint in the middle of it now, and I stopped it, and I walked back. And, but I noted to myself as I was doing it that I had a smile on my face. I had a smile on my face because it was so absurd. It was just ridiculous. Shirt blowing down the street. I'm outside the stadium. There's no one around. It's dark. It's cold. And the fact that the FedEx driver said, I loved the story about your shirt, it means the world to me. It, it means the world to me that you read. It means the world to me that you listen. It means a lot to me because I'm having a blast on this show. I'm having a blast writing at johnconzano.com. But, like, there's some synergy that did not exist in my life before that is there now. And I'm just having the best time with all this stuff. So if you want a subscription, go to johnconzano.com, get a free subscription, get a paid subscription. I don't care. Whatever works for you works for me. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Peter Sampson's coming up top of the hour with the Pulse. NBA's in full swing. You'll want to be listening to Peter Sampson on 750 The Game. He'll lead you into the NBA action this week. Blazers suiting up tomorrow night. Ducks will be taking on UCLA on Saturday. Beavers will be home at 
Racer Stadium against Colorado in the evening. One game, uh, the Ducks uh, will kick off at 12.30, college football game day. College game day will be there. Uh, we're working on Reese Davis of College Game Day. I have the people at ESPN telling me that they are efforting him, trying to line up his schedule. Uh, on uh, tomorrow's show, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, will be joining us. On Thursday, we'll get a visit from Dan Lanning, University of Oregon coach. On Friday, Jeff Schwartz, former NFL offensive lineman, now uh, hosting a show on Sirius XM. He'll be joining us to talk about football in general. We'll give our picks tomorrow and Thursday. Uh, I had a really good week against the spread. I, I said I needed it, Stephen. I, I, I think I went 4-1 and one in the Pac-12 last week against the spread. I didn't do as good straight up, but I called the Stanford cover. They won the game outright. I said that Washington uh, would win but not cover. That happened. Uh, the only game I lost in the Pac-12 was Utah-USC. I had Utah covering. They did not cover. They won the game but did not cover. So um, how are you feeling about last week and your picks? Yeah, I mean, I feel okay. Well, what's more important, John? Is it, is it straight up or against the spread? What would you rather do better at? I, I want both. I was, doing so good, <laughs> I was doing so good straight up that it bothered me that I, I think I went like three and two or two and three straight up. But I went four and one against the spread. So I guess I'll take it because I was only one game over 500 against the spread. So I'll take it because it gives me a little breathing room. Yeah, you just gotta you just gotta call yourself out and say, you know what, John, I need a I need a good week this week. That's what you need to do. That's what I did last week. I said I need I was stinking it up. I need a good week. I need another good week. All right, leave it here for Peter Sampson if you're listening on seven fifty the game. He's got some great NBA talk coming up. The pulse with Peter Sampson is next. We are back tomorrow with Jonathan Smith. Thursday again, Dan Lanning. We get the guests here. It's home of the truth.